Hello, everybody. Hope you all enjoyed lunch. We are ready to move on uh, to our next panel, which will focus on uh, audience measurement and issues of metrics across multiple media platforms. Um, my name is Sam Ford. I am the project manager for C3. In fact, I probably have had personal interaction with almost every one of you. Since, uh, as you know, we're a small team, so it's not surprising that the, uh, you know, we pitch in and wear multiple hats when it comes to conference organizing. So, uh, but the, the upside to that is, is I got to know that, that we actually have, no offense to the panelists, as interesting of a crowd or more interesting of a crowd than, than you know, we could even muster with a panelist, which is why we dedicate two and a half hours to and don't put all the pressure on these guys to, uh, to handle things. <laughs> but we've got a stellar lineup today. Uh, what I thought is I would let, I'm going to momentarily let them introduce themselves to you, and if each of you could uh, share with the audience also um, sort of wh what your passion is about this topic in particular, what drove you to be interested in speaking on this panel today, because there are a lot of issues in this realm facing audience measurement right now, and I think each of you are looking at it from a very different perspective, which I think is the strength of this panel as a whole. I do want to make a couple of quick announcements first. Uh, we have the URL here for the back channel discussion uh, to put questions up. I think most of you probably heard that announcement earlier, but if you all have any questions, feel free to, to go on the site, send them through. We'll be taking questions from there as well. Also, uh, we are live blogging the conference uh, at our Convergence Culture Consortium website, which is uh, convergenceculture.org slash weblog. So be sure to check that out, uh, make some comments even. Uh, and I know several of you are probably doing some blogging or some chats about it as well, so we definitely love to hear that. Uh, it's good to have buzz, isn't it, Jim? Absolutely. All right. <laughs> it's all so, about buzz. But I want to now, it makes a good segue, so if you want to uh, start the discussion off with what you all do at Symphony. Okay, sure. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jim Nail. I'm the Chief Strategy and Marketing Officer at Symphony, a TNS media intelligence company. They make me say that. Um, we were acquired by them in the spring. And what Symphony is, is uh, what Forrester calls a brand monitoring company. Uh, what that means simply is we tell brands and companies what people are saying about them on blogs and social media, but also in traditional media. Um, so we have a, a technology platform that pulls in content from all sorts of different sources that then runs some very sophisticated natural language processing, text mining algorithms against it to find out you know, what are the topics, what are the brands being talked about, are people positive or negative toward those things, all sorts of other good stuff, um, and then put it into an online uh, uh, dashboard then for uh, analysts, whether it's our analysts or whether it's our clients' analysts, to go find out uh, what things you know? What things are being said about them? Um, I do want to answer the passion question because uh, you know, before I, I joined Symphony, I was eight years at Forrester Research, which was the best job of my entire career. I absolutely loved it, and so I often get the question: Well, what would ever pull you out of a great job that you loved so much? And what it was was you know, as I as I went through the eight years of of covering a sequence of online advertising to search to email marketing and finally to word of mouth marketing. Um, what really got me excited was um, as much as internet marketing changed things, uh, it really didn't change things that much. It was still big media companies aggregating audiences and selling those audiences to advertisers. When it came to word of mouth, this is a fundamental change in the relationship between brands and their audiences. 
And a lot of these questions I'm probably going to turn inside out. And Murray and I were talking about there's a couple things we're going to turn inside out here as we go through the discussion. Um, and I got really excited by that, that idea of here's an opportunity to take an industry that's you know, been doing things one way for 50 or more years and completely reinvent it. So that's why I'm here. My name is Mari Giles, and I direct our accountability and analytics at GSTM's Idea City, which is a marketing solutions advertising agency in Austin, Texas. And actually, what's interesting about the question of passion, what do I do, and why am I involved here? Um, I actually am not an advertiser. It's funny, I work in an advertising agency marketing solution, but my background, I was a newspaper reporter for about four or five years. Enjoyed it, loved it, but realized I wanted to have a family and make some money and thought, okay, this is a fun thing to do for a while. <laughs> but in doing that and in studying that and being a journalist and being able to figure out consumer opinion from, you know, just directly what people are thinking about issues, became fascinated about the, uh, the concepts behind how you actually tap into those attitudes and those opinions and then spent the next, I guess, five or six years running political campaigns and doing marketing research where your market dynamics are such that there's a very clear decision in the marketplace. And at that point, you have to get 50 point plus one to win <laughs> or the game's over. And so, therefore, what was fascinating about working in the political arena, and I worked under uh, Richard Worthland, who uh, you may know from studying in the Reagan years, was his strategist and coming up through there, which is interesting now working with Roy Spence, who's worked with basically Mondale and, and, then, and then Clinton. Uh, he, Roy oftentimes tells me I'm the token Republican there in Austin. Um, but the, the, the issue of the, the reason I bring up that on the political side is the things we had to do in tracking the audience and the impact of all of our resources that were quite limited are all completely constrained in a point of time where we absolutely have to be accountable because it's done, said, over on that day the second, you know, on, in November when things are, are done. And so it was a great laboratory of learning and testing and continues to be of how you can be more accountable to explore, take risks, but also have a direct relation understanding of the impact in the marketplace and then make decisions based upon those things. Uh, it, from there, I actually spent the uh, next uh, eight years or so with, with Worthland and Harris Interactive on the market research side of things and spent most of my time, and, and the reason came to GSDM a couple of years ago, was the advertising world has traditionally been in this space where it was an interesting dynamic of saying that, um, you know, we know we spend it, we just don't know what part is making a difference, and it's okay because we know we need it. But obviously that's dramatically changed over the years, and so agencies having to say and bring in-house disciplines to say, how do we get smarter about holding ourselves accountable and making better decisions in our planning and optimization? and expanding beyond just traditional. And it's an interesting challenge in the agency world because of not just the dynamics of the fragmentation of the consumer, but then within the agency world, you also have just a culture that is dramatically changed of those that are on the creative side that have done historically one particular thing and those that are coming up through different digital interactive channels. So what I am passionate about in this piece is a, a couple of things. One is how do you take a more holistic viewpoint of the various pathways that you have as a marketer at your disposal to connect with your audience. How can you do individual specific metrics that will help you understand what you're doing and how much you're accomplishing with the job of that channel? 
and then the kind of modeling you can do on the back end to be able to try to optimize. And that's fascinating stuff in a, in a rapidly changing complex market with so many more things that the consumer has at their control. So that's kind of my background and what I hope to contribute and also learn from you all. Uh, I guess that's my turn then. Um, I'm Stacey Lynn Schulman, and I run the ad sales research function at Turner Broadcasting for the entertainment network. So that encompasses uh, TBS, TNT, Court TV, uh, which is becoming True TV, um, Turner Sports, Cartoon Network, Adult Swim, some brands you may or may not recognize. Um, and that's, actually, that's a very new role for me. I've just joined them in the last month. And uh, frankly, I think the reason why I'm here on this panel is more to do with uh, the work I've done in the last 15 years on the agency side of the business. I was part of a, a large agency holding company called Interpublic. And um, I worked for one of their media agencies called Initiative, and later for the holding company itself uh, in a group called the Consumer Experience Practice um, that I formed and had a very small team, uh, one of those folks coming from the uh, Comparative Media Studies program here, Alex Chisholm, who's probably in the back somewhere. Maybe not. Well, there he is. <laughs> um, and, you know, my uh, career has been rather interesting because it really started in the very traditional television space. I started at, you know, at CBS, uh, worked into the agency life, and it was really about understanding television audiences in a very traditional way. Uh, what demographics were watching certain programs, what was likely to happen season after season with now, most of our focus being in the broadcast realm and sometimes um, in the cable and syndication realm, but broadcast had the lion's share of our attention. And that's a, it was, it's a very interesting and exciting place to work as a young person because there's any number of, you know, overflowing shrimp bowls at any number of parties um, and celebrities, you know, who'll take pictures with you. And, you know, it's great for young people. I highly recommend trying it for a few years. Um, <laughs> But, you know, the reality of it is that it's, it's a, a system that has been measured the same way um, for years. And it has tweaked slightly. You know, we had a big shift in the late 80s when we had people meters come into the market and we were no longer looking at household demographics on a metered basis, but now we had actual people information, and that was a big shift for us. Um, the next time there was a big shift was when we had more than three major networks. When we actually, I remember being at CBS, when we would report ABC, CBS, NBC, and then Fox was always on the bottom line, and it was, a, is it a network? Is it, should we give it network status? Should we not? Should we even acknowledge that it exists? <laughs> How many hours of programming do they really have? You know, I, this is the conversations we were having in 1991. Of course, they obviously are a full-fledged network, and then we got the CW and, um, well, actually, we got UPN and WB, which is now combined the CW. But all of that was a lot of change in the 1990s, and it was very exciting because, you know, my generation, we grew up with three networks, and suddenly now there were six major networks and lots of cable going on, so lots of programming and whatnot. And my reputation was really built in hit predicting being able to tell advertisers and consumers what shows we thought were going to be hits in the next season. Um, and that took me through, you know, 
the end of the decade, and once we got into you know this um, this century, it became obvious that the fragmentation was becoming ridiculous, and it was harder and harder to predict hits. And I got a call from a client um, who was incredibly annoyed that it was September. And we weren't able to tell her three months ago that Queer Eye for the Straight Guy was going to be a hit. And she was just, you know, up in arms about the fact that this was supposed to be our business. And why is it that we couldn't identify um, that this show was going to come out of the cable world and um, take everybody by storm and get more buzz uh, than a broadcast show would? And that got us to thinking a lot. And it was about the same time that Initiative, who I was working for at the time, was in a relationship with MIT and uh, was pre-convergence C3 consortium. Um, and we did a lot of research together about interactivity, about what was happening with reality audiences, about um, the convergence of different media forms and how consumers were reacting. And that actually became very exciting for me and, and is, continues to be my passion now. So I won't, you know, um, I was going to use a, a not a very good expression, but I won't give you everything I've got in my head right now. I'll wait to see as the, uh, as the panel goes on. But that, that is an area that, uh, that I work in now that I'm really excited about is how audiences are moving across spaces and uh, how we measure them, because it's a big challenge. Good afternoon. My name is Bruce Leishman. I'm president and principal analyst of Leishman Research Group, based in Durham, New Hampshire, the hub of media research. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you laugh. <laughs> Good to see everybody's awake. Um, basically, I'm excited to be here, because what my company specializes in, basically I've got a boutique research analyst firm very focused on the future of entertainment, but not just the future of entertainment, the future of media and entertainment and broadband, but also the present. Because I think when we look at the future, we have to start with the present. So what my company does is combine a lot of consumer research with provider-side research, because that's when we really get an understanding of how markets are evolving. I do uh, a lot of syndicated consumer studies. On, I just finished one on HDTV, do them on DVRs, on on-demand, on broadband, on cable and satellite TV, uh, on iPod video, cell phone video, what have you. So I'm constantly out in the market trying to understand what consumers have, what they're interested in getting, how much they're willing to pay, what have you. Because the one thing that I think is very important is never to use the sample of one. So what is the sample of one? The sample of one is me. And the worst thing that I see, one of the great things about being in Durham, New Hampshire, other than it's beautiful up there, is that I don't get caught up in New York or LA or even Cambridge, Massachusetts. Um, you, you cannot think of yourself as being the mass, because you are not the mass. I saw a lot of questions earlier today. How many of you have this? Who cares? Who cares? If you're trying to think about what the market has, never think about yourselves. Never think about your friends. I don't think about myself as a research analyst. That's what I am. I'm doing research, but thinking about an analyst, the worst thing I could do would think I, I represent the mass, that you know, then everybody would be Jewish guys with ball, who are balding living in New Hampshire. That's not the mass. <laughs> So we've really got to separate ourselves from that. And that, to me, is one of my passions, is that when we look out there and understand we don't represent, what does America look like? And that's why I do the research. And the reason I do it in entertainment, 
and it, it, it always uh, entertains my, my family is because I watched way too much television as a kid. You know, I sat back there and just watched <laughs> television, watched television. Well, I made a business out of that. So that, that's always fun when you can uh, make, a, make, make a profession out of what you really enjoy. And I do enjoy entertainment. I could not be a research analyst on toilet paper, per se. So that's what I'm focused on. I'm really focused on looking. And we, when we look, when I look at the future of entertainment, the future of HD, DVRs on demand, one of the big things you really have to look at is what is the future? I mean, we can talk about all these gee whiz things, but to me what's really important, and I'm an old marketer as well, is I think of it in marketing terms. Is the future three years, 13 years, 23 years? Well, it's a lot different if you try and determine what the time frame of that future is. And that's what I'm trying to do, is trying to understand what is the time frame of these futures of entertainment. Thank you all. Uh, one, one good place to start, and, and, and you all touched on this, would be with uh, something very topical for television industry and something that uh, Jesse Alexander and Mark Walshaw talked a little bit last night about at the Heroes uh, panel, the writer's strike. So the writer's strike brings up a really interesting question because one of the fundamental disconnects is what to do with new media uh, and how to value those things and how to value the, the selling of those things. And of course, you, know, you can't apply the metrics of television to uh, to these new spaces. So I just, from each of your perspectives, I was just wondering what you feel, you know, how is metrics and measurement a, a major part of this, of this current uh, disconnect between the writers and producers? Sure, yeah, I, I'm going to start by alienating the, off the audience with two hours to go. Um, a lot, of, a <laughs> lot of people applauded at the end of that, that um, uh, writer's strike video. The whole premise of the writer's strike is based on a hockey stick curve, right? That was the centerpiece of, of, their, of the whole debate is this hockey stick curve of revenue. I think it said 4.6 billion. What if that hockey stick curve is wrong? What if that hockey stick curve is wrong? Because no money's being made today. Mm -hmm. Virtually no money's being made today. What if that hockey stick curve is wrong? And the, you know what? It's wrong. It's wrong. That money is not going to be made in the near term. So are you, are you uh, striking and, and losing jobs over something that doesn't exist today? As Eisner said, maybe you'd be better off striking in three years when there's actually a market out there that could actually happen. Remember, those hockey stick curves are coming from the same firms that had hockey stick curves on DVR, on on demand, on what have you. We've got to be very careful when we make a premise uh, based on hype. And we've really, that's one of the key things. We've got to separate hype from reality and look at how is the market really going to evolve. I think that's one of the challenges in, in, in the strike is, okay, if we base it on this premise of 4.6 billion, I didn't even know what they said over the three-year period or what have you. Well, you know, I think we've really got to think, how fast is that market really evolving? And is the money really there? Uh, you know, I don't disagree with you. I, I mean, I disagree with you a little bit. But <laughs> no, come on, come on. We got a lot of time. Just disagree with me. I'll, it's okay. I'll disagree gotta, with you a lot. There's like a so. plate of shrimp out here. Come on. Shrimp? <laughs> well, you no. said shrimp. Uh, I, you know, I really don't like seafood. And no. That's the truth. But um, <laughs> it, this, it's a very interesting situation because, you know, as you say, and what I was thinking as you were talking is that how many times have we seen, you know, this research by, you know, different companies, some of them I won't name. Some um, of which I did in my yes. career. <laughs> <laughs> Who, you know, have these growth curves for, you know, all kinds of technologies and adoption. And, you know, for one reason or another, 
they don't happen. But it, the, the reason is because they're predictions. You know, it's not fact. We're projecting what will happen. It's the same thing with audiences. We're projecting what they will and won't like. And by the way, I we have the same belief that you can't evaluate programming based on your own tastes because you know I was a twenty-something you know young woman evaluating programming, and my boss was a forty-something <laughs> you know married married guy, and we would fight all the time about whether or not something would be successful, and then we took our personal hats off. But it's the same thing. We really don't know what's going to happen in the future. But I will say that content is king, and we wouldn't have a lot of this content without the writers, and so they do deserve a stake in what's going on. Now, um, what kind of a stake and to what degree is a different question. I think if we hang our hat on numbers that are projected, then we get into trouble. But, um, but sharing in the pie is definitely something that should be on the table. Don't deny that. It's just, you know, the premise of, of what, how big is that revenue stream and, you know, the 48% who are out of work, is that really going to represent any money? I think that's the big question. And as, you know, as research and an analyst, we've got to understand it, how some research and analyst is incented to draw the hockey stick. That oftentimes it's more, it's sexier, it's more exciting. And the same thing with companies to say, look at all this potential that's out there. Well, and that ties back to, I mean, Sam's real question is, we can't quantify how successful a lot of this stuff is. We can't quantify how many times people are downloading and reviewing the same content. Um, we may get a sense of how many unique times they look at it, but it's not as if we can get a sense of repeat viewership, pass along viewership, you know, any of these terms um, that we've come to develop um, in marketing, you know, audience evaluation, they're, 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 it's just a new science. And uh, without those kinds of metrics, and I'm sure you're kind of in that space too. So we, you know, what we fight with every day is to fuse or not to fuse data. And this is what happens with researchers who like get into a room with, you know, with you know their research hats on, and they go, well, can we really <coughs> fuse this data with this data to say we know that this percentage of people who start on TV end up in broadband and then go to their, you know, to their iPods and these other and VOD and all these other stuff. <coughs> We can't. They're not the same sample. We don't have one pure sample of folks that's showing us what they're doing in all these spaces. We have lots of different samples and panels and things. Um, but it, it's a challenge to try and get a sense of what that cross-media multiplier is. You know, on the, on, on the short-term issue of predicting whether that revenue stream is really there with that content, um, might not be true, might not be real. But I think it goes to more of a definition of what success is and, 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 and the reason I think that this kind of, for better or for worse, this strike can, can push to the forefront the, the, the debate around are we going to define measurement on traditional terms and try to just continue to have a thing about eyeballs and reach and size of audience and have that be the framework with which this debate is faced or are we going to shift the debate to the, to the point of the consumer today has much more opportunity and control. Now the debate as to how big, you know, how big that audience is of people that have their control to pull onto that content. That they're able to pull down and use that content in so many different ways and, and in, a, in, in the time window with which technology changes to let more and more people access this content, I think the old paradigm is going to rapidly fall down of, of predicting, of, of trying to determine um, the value of network programming 
and then how it gets dispersed throughout there, rather than being focused on eyeballs and reach and people, what if the debate and the discussion shifted toward um, the individual audiences and the viral component or the pass-along effect of this, of this content that, that because the Internet technology allows for a long-tail effect to truly be there with such a, a big market of niche audiences that have interest in these very different things, that the volume of money that could be spent on marketing and spent on trying to access that content and get in front of people, all of a sudden gets is is anchored in individual niche audiences and the impact of of content that people really want to really want to share, and and then how that's monetized. And, and so I guess I just think it's it's a shift of it, it, are we still talking so much about eyeballs and numbers of audiences reached? And the debate around fusing data seems to be so focused on well, how many people did we reach? When in reality, does that, is that really the debate anymore? Should we really be thinking about that, or should we be thinking entirely different of individual niche and fan culture bases that, are, that exist that become very relevant to mid- and small-sized companies and even large companies with niche markets and niche products? I'm, I'm going to do my best to agree and disagree with everybody so far. But I feel like I have to stand up for the analysts first. Thank you, first. <laughs> I feel like I have to stand up for the analyst community first. Um, I'm one of them. But I totally agree with you. You know, never believe those hockey sticks. And at Forrester, the sort of mantra we were given is that those kinds of predictions are uh, uh, opinions in numerical form. And that's all they are, are opinions. And whenever we would meet with a client, and they'd be all focused on the hockey stick and how big it is, we would try to refocus them on, let's, let me tell you what my assumptions are, and let's discuss whether you agree with those assumptions or not. Because if you don't agree with them, you're going to come up with a very different business plan than if you agree with them. And that's really the way I think you should treat those kinds of things. Um, so Bruce, totally agree with you. Watch the consumer. It is all about the consumer at the end of the day. And the, the times when I did my irrational exuberance uh, projections, it was because I lost sight of the consumer. And the one thing I learned in, I started at Forrester in 1997, rode through bubble 1.0, through the bust, and you know, now I'm in the middle of bubble 2.0. Um, is the technology changes far, far faster than either the consumer or the, the industry structures. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are incredibly important uh, things that retard what, what happens in the market, and there's only so fast those can get pushed. Um, but, you know, I, I think fundamentally what is good about this strike and where I expect it to go and sort of what you were saying, Maury, I think it's going to have to focus, to, in order to resolve it, they're going to have to get away from kind of audience thinking and get to individual thinking. Because if I were a studio, I would in no way pay any writer, yeah, I'll give you a flat fee for the internet rights and the online rights of all this stuff, because I have no idea what that revenue stream is going to be. The writer, if I'm a writer, screw it. You know, they got screwed on VCRs. They're not going to do that again, and I don't blame them. But the only way to resolve that is to come up with some sort of residual per view. So Why not by revenue? Could be by revenue. But I think it's going to drive to the individual. Because all the technologies out there, everything on demand, somewhere there is a record, here's how many people downloaded this program. And if it's pay-per-view, here's how much they paid, so we'll give you, you know, half of a percent, or whatever that number is. Um, or there's, you know... 532,173 people watch this, and you get 10 cents per whatever the number is. Those numbers are out there, and I think that's the way this is going to have to go to resolve this strike, which will drive all sorts of other really interesting changes 
in the whole metrics and measurement. You know, I think one of the points that, that Bruce makes, and, and one of the things we're in complete agreement on and even had conversations before I interviewed him for the consortium's blog at one point, uh, is about the idea of sort of keeping in mind the general audience. I'm being from Kentucky, I'm from what is definitely flyover country. And, you know, I, I spent a summer working for the consortium while living in Kentucky and doing some work as a journalist. And I found that often I would be talking to people on coasts uh, about research they were doing and finding, you know, that, that there is a disconnect with the lifestyle. For instance, I was on dial-up internet while I was trying to email with them part of the time. And, you know, so I think, you know, you're very much right that change takes time. And often overhype can be very dangerous. But one of the, the reason I'm bringing this up is one of the questions that's actually popped up on the, our board here uh, focuses on, well, if there's not if there's not a revenue stream that's measurable or quantifiable, is this someone's fault? Is, you know, should there be a revenue stream by this point? Should the is is there something industry specific? Is is anybody in particular to blame for uh, an impediment for making a viable revenue stream, or is this just an instance of change taking time and these markets not evolving to the point that they can be quantified like they should be yet? I, I could really alienate Stacy with, with this answer. You think you think you know me, but maybe you don't. <laughs> you know, I, I think sort of trying to assign blame is kind of is kind of extreme because it's just it's just the fact. This is the way the world works today. These are stru industry structures that have been in place for fifty years. You're not going to flip a switch and change them overnight. Um, that said, um, you know the networks are the ones who for fifty years have been in the position of power. They've, you know, had the choke point on distribution, and as they lose that, and, you know, they're seeing that with the whole media fragmentation thing for the last 15, 20 years, um, you know, it's devastating to their business model. So they're not going to, like, they're not going to be real happy about the fact that, oh, okay, you know, we're not one of the only three or six networks anymore, and, and we have none of that, that level of control. Um, and well, I think not only that, they're not they're not just the, the source of entertainment. In other words, right. the content entertainment is not just a network-based concept anymore, right? Mm -hmm. And anyhow, sorry, keep going. Well, because <laughs> ultimately, um, you know, the, the vision that, that many people have is if everything can be distributed, you know, IP protocol, you know, on-demand, et cetera, the networks serve absolutely no function. They are useless intermediaries. Um, but, you know, that's going to be, you, you've got multi-billion dollar businesses with widows invested in them in their pensions, and it's incredibly disruptive, not just to the studio bigwigs, but to everybody who has, who has a piece of that. So um, it's going to take time to work out that transition. Yeah, I think perspective. Uh, when we, you, perspective is very important, and to see where we are in time. As I said, you know, I try and look at today as much as, as the future. So let's, let's look at today. And I think when you look at data, and one of my passions is playing with data, you can see it in a lot of different lights. So you look at the data, and this is not my data, it's Comscore data, on online video usage. So this is legal online video usage. Two years ago, it was 6 billion minutes per month. Today, it's 24 billion minutes per month. That's incredible, right? 6 billion minutes per month to 24 billion minutes per month. Incredible. Well... What does it really mean? 24 billion minutes per month, six minutes per user per month. Six minutes per user per month of online video. That's where we stand today. A lot of people don't like to hear that. It's the truth. 
is the truth. That's the mean number today is six minutes. More time was spent. But, and by the way, that's of users. Of people on, online, it's 4.5 minutes. Of all adults, it's three and a half minutes. Is it growing? You bet it's growing. Is it television? It, you know, people, oh my God, it's not taking away from television. Well, it's six minutes. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, and, and, and then, by the way, that is very segmented to... Uh, it's not many to 34, in other words. Yeah, and that is where it's segmented to, very, very much so. So we've got to look at it. We're in the evolutionary stage. But, you know, I hear about the YouTube phenomenon a lot. I never hear about the Wayne Brady phenomenon. Anybody know? Anybody watch Fox's show by Wayne Brady? Yeah. Yeah, it's great, right? It. Yeah. No, nope, not many people here. Well, do you know twice as much time was spent watching Wayne Brady's... What's Wait, I had to write down the show because... Don't it's not forget a, the lyrics. Don't forget the lyrics. I forgot the show. Twice as much time... <laughs> Eyeball time was spot, spent watching Don't Forget the Lyrics than all the time on YouTube in a given day. As much time is spent on Comcast On Demand every day as on YouTube. Believe it or not. So we've got to keep these things in perspective. Are the markets growing? You bet they're growing, but it's all about evolution, not revolution. Right. And we've got to understand where we stand today. We're still in the very early stages. From a big media and entertainment uh, um, standpoint, well, yeah, I mean, I can take a pack of cigarettes and smoke them all at one time, but why would I do that? I can take all my shows and just put them online, but why would I bust my revenue model? Why would I do that? It makes exactly. no sense to do that. And by the way, the consumer's not there yet. The typical consu consumer, typical, is not there yet. Yes. It's all evolving. I, you know, I will jump in here and um, give you a, my a couple different perspectives on this. One is, there is, if you go to any marketer today, and I don't know if there are any marketers in the audience, but if you want to raise your hands and identify yourselves, you can go ahead. <laughs> if you'll admit it. If you'll admit it. <laughs> You know, when I was on the agency side of the business, it was my perspective that as over the last five years in particular, as we hear about all this new technology, these new capabilities, the, um, the enabled consumer, the fragmentation of audiences, the wresting of control from, you know, the big man, you know, all that, um, what we would consistently hear from clients is that all they were interested in is the next bright, shiny object, you know? It was like, I want to get on, on Flickster. I want to be on um, MySpace. I want to be in Facebook. I want to be in, um, what's the virtual world I'm thinking Second of? Second Life. Second Life, yeah. right? I want I want I want I want I want to. I call that the GMOT strategy. Yeah. The get me one <laughs> of those. Right. It was. It was a get me one of those. Second Life, get me one of those. It would be, you know, 4.30 in the afternoon, and I would like your recommendation by 5 o'clock as to how many millions of dollars I should put into Second Life. So, <laughs> I'm not kidding. Um, she is. I, I'm an ex-agency guy, too. Right? She's not kidding. No, that's exactly the question. And, and the thing is that what, what happens is that the industry gets this sense that that everybody is in these spaces and everybody wants to be in these spaces and that there's, you know, a, you know, a groundswell of interest because 80% of their mind share is on the bright, shiny objects that are out there. Um, and 20% is, oh yeah, and just remind me how well my traditional media dollars are working. But the reality is that 80% of their dollars 
is in traditional media, and you know maybe one percent or less is in the bright shiny objects because when you know the rubber hits the road, it's always yes, I want to do that, and I want to do that, and I want to do that, and I want to do that. Great. Now tell me how many GRPs I'm going to get, and how many men 18 mm. to 34 we're going to reach, and they want to see these new technologies and these new distribution platforms and all these bright shiny objects expressed in yeah, mechanisms that they understand. Right. And it doesn't exist. And, and, and everything breaks down from there because then they have to make an investment based on faith. <clears throat> and by the way, the procurement guys are breathing down their necks to, to have them, you know, basically validate whatever investments they're making to say the money's really working. Right. And they can't say the money's working yet because the metrics don't exist. Uh, in ways that they understand. So and, that's part of, of the problem here. And, and look no further than online advertising to see how that breakdown happens. Um, because back in about 2002, you know, when I was doing some, some work on this, you know, during the bust, and, and, and marketers were like, oh, online advertising doesn't work. Look at all these companies going out of business. And I wrote a report that said, but wait a minute. Look at the consumer. 30% of their media consumption time is now online and you're spending 2% of your budget. Now, not that it's a direct correlation that 30% equals 30%, but you know, now all of a sudden we're up to maybe 8% of their budget. So, and a lot of that does have to do with, you know, how do I equate this to GRPs or, you know, you know I, and I, I just don't understand this idea of I'm buying eyeballs as opposed to buying audiences or, or all of those kinds of things that just, you know, uh, those decisions to move Millions of dollars, plus, don't forget, those millions of dollars are supposed to move multiple millions of dollars of product, which is also supposed to move their personal careers. Um, uh, <laughs> it, if they don't have a way to understand that that's going to do all of those things, uh, they very quickly you know, shy away from those decisions. It's yeah. true. And I'll, I'll, I'll just one, one, the flip side of what I was telling you about the bright, shiny objects is that there are also other marketers out there who have the, you know, I call it the lean back, arms crossed posture, who will let you walk into their office and try and sell you any of the new things that you think they should get into because they should diversify that their competition is, you know, in MySpace and Facebook and Second Life and, and you should be there too because you're Coca-Cola or whoever you are. Um, and, you know, these are the marketers that lean back and they go, yeah, except, you know what, every time I put my commercial on TV in that traditional medium that you keep telling me is dying, I sell X amount of, you know, Coca-Cola or X amount of Pampers or X amount of, you know, toilet paper. So, you know, then you're in the situation of saying, well, okay, so you know that works. So... <laughs> Um, you know, and, and it's an uncomfortable thing because you're trying to get them to do something new. Those, by the way, are also the clients that come back to you and fire you the next year because you never brought them a new idea. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what strikes me as interesting, though, about these, the, the, this particular part of this debate is that all of those discussions that we just went through are coming through the lens of a, of a common paradigm that starts with the discussion around a, a measurement strategy that came from a network perspective of how do I make money for my distribution channel. Mm -hmm. And so therefore the discussion is all about 
well, how many people are you going to reach? And therefore, that's, that's the currency. It's like, well, you can reach so many different people. And so now, the, both the marketer and the, and the distribution channel still are having discussions about technology and channels that are very individual-centric. That Sure, me can reach a lot of people, but their value is not the mass. The value is the niche and the individual. And then the discussion still is around, okay, well, then tell me how many of those individuals I met. So rather than, so part of the paradigm shift that I think has to happen is instead of the dialogue all coming around this framework of distribution and monetizing that distribution, it needs to be about relevance and flipping it from the individual consumer now. Uh, a, a metaphor that uh, a colleague of mine, a friend of mine, uh, Andy Hunter used, which I really like, is this notion that think of it as what we've been doing for 50 years is making an apple pie. We put whatever we thought was best in that apple pie, our messaging, our product, our conversation that we wanted to have with the consumer. And then from a media and a channel and a reach perspective, we've said, well, where's the best place I can get this apple pie out of the most people so that I'll have a lot of people take that pie? Well, without being trite here, what's really the dynamic today is that it's an orchard, not a place making apple pies. It's the consumer wants to make their own pie. And so they're pulling down apples at their own leisure, at their own desire, and creating whatever it is of their own world that they want. I guess my, my challenge there is, is that today or is that... It is today. Is, I mean, obviously it's an issue that's <laughs> evolving, but clearly we see that, that you know, we just saw the, the, the biggest mass audience ever in the history of cable TV. And I'm sure nobody in this room watched it, but it was, any guesses? High School Musical, yes, two. <laughs> Biggest My ever. My three daughters all watched it. The Patriots, the Patriots Colts game was the yeah. highest watched, I think, non Super sure. Bowl in the last 20. So the, I, I'm saying, of course, these things are evolving. Of course, there's opportunity for on demand and it's happening. And it is there today. But, you know, to me, audience is all about segmentation, right? What are marketers paying for? What are you looking at is segmentation. So there are some people, particularly younger people, who want what I want when I want. And those are the people who are most intrigued by on-demand, by DVR, and what have you. The 55-plus, which still represents a huge audience, um, is not necessarily there yet and may never be there. So, I, I, you, know, I, 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 you know, I caution because, you know, I was, I was on another panel and the person said, the days of appointment viewing are dead. And I was like, wait a minute, they're not dead. They're still, I, I think it's a combination See, of I the two. I think the days of appointment viewing are very much alive, but I'm setting the appointment. So my competition for myself as a network Instead of being worried about who's best at the 8, at the 8 p.m. time slot, I don't watch it. Now, does the masses? I, I agree with you that part of what I'm saying, I guess, is beyond just the issue of monetizing entertainment and looking at it from a marketer's perspective of how to connect with what I need people to think, feel, or do. Now, I can tag on to, obviously, marketers bring money to that equation, to the entertainment equation, because we've thrown advertising in the mix while someone's watching. Well, from a marketer perspective, I think, and outside of just thinking just entertainment, is that these channels aren't just things that I can throw my ads on top of. They're ways I can actually become relevant in the way a person's making a decision day to day. Now, do the masses go through and use um, net vibes to, to pull in their different blogs and capture all these different things, or, or, or hooking in YouTube video? No, but I think that if we're truly going to revolutionize the way we monetize the system, we have to acknowledge that that, that 
that the discussion being anchored in distribution and monetizing against that has got to can't be the future of the way it's of the way it's monetized. I think mm -hmm. it, it needs to be more to the relevance and the role that it plays in the consumer, and therefore mapping out me as a marketer. How do I connect with that consumer with in the context of what I'm trying to get them to think, feel, or do. And I, I'm going to cautious us not to fall into the trap that the world is all this way or it's all that way. Um, Thank you. That's yeah. what, that's, what well, that's a good say. point. And, and one thing there is, there is, and, and no, because I think it is all that way, way and not this way. I guess my, my concern, though, is that all the measurement debate yeah. is still one way. It's right. still still about distribution, still right. about eyeballs, and we're saying well, let's just get a let's get a common net metric for eyeballs. That's the Why? problem when people think the world is is this way, so my measures are fine. No, the world is going to be this way, so I have to have these measures. And what we have to do is look at, you know, and it's it gets to be a really messy world, you know. Mm -hmm. And I I have pondered a lot about can we get one single metric in this new world, and I really don't think so. Um, and so I don't think we should to, try to be. That, we, that's we, <laughs> but but you know there is appointment viewing. Sure. And we see, you, you, you look at the TiVo and the DVR kind of data, sure. a live sport event is an appointment event. What's not an appointment event or is becoming less an appoint, appointment event in the future will not be an appointment event is, you know, Thursday night, 8 o'clock, Seinfeld or whatever. That's the stuff that's like, oh, yeah, I can catch that a little bit later. But it's the high school musical, you know, your kids, they're going to be they're going to be totally out of it the next day if all their buddies and all their sure. pals have seen it and they haven't. That's appointment viewing. If you can't talk about, you know, the, the, the Patriots-Colts game the next day, you, you know, you don't have any friends. And what's so. interesting about that appointment viewing on those things, though, is that the appointment doesn't, e even with sports, the appointment becomes between the time I'm going to see news or interact with somebody else. So, for example, the way, just a, just a sample of one, right? I'm just a sample of one, and, and, and I'm not saying this is how we make decisions, but my point is, is that, we need to be thinking about way individuals make decisions is that if I'm going to be watching, you know, I've got four kids and I've got church, I've got school with my kids, I've got all this stuff competing for my time, I absolutely have to see that Colts-Patriots game. But the reality of that particular Sunday is we had some events that were going on, and so I recorded it and knew I had to watch it prior to a phone call that was coming from my brother. Now, <laughs> this three-hour thing I watched in 45 minutes, but yeah. I had all the points that I needed. a lot of angst for you. Exactly. Well, one one thing I wanted to bring up to tie it back into oh, where we started. Hey. Oh, hey. <laughs> uh, to tie it back into where we started was uh, was to, to go back to the, the writer strike. Going back to the writer strike. You know, one one thing that I think is an interesting point is and was raised also on the, the question board up there is that uh, what we're talking about is we're are we making a deal for where we're at today or are we making a deal for a contract that will be in place for a while to come and how to balance looking at the world today versus looking at a deal that will set a precedent. But to move on, to, you, know, you all are discussing single metrics. I want to move on to another contemporary example, and that is Jericho. And the, the CBS Jericho discussion over the summer, which came into talking about fans uh, rallying for a show, but also talking about fans who said, we're watching, we're watching in DVR, we're watching online video. Why do our eyeballs not count the same way that a... Uh, that a television viewer, if I'm watching an appointment television model, does. Now, we know some of the business reasons why that's so. I'm curious, do you think there can ever be a model of comparison across multiple media forms? Can yes. there be a metric that, cr that crosses cross-platform? And that's important to us since this is a comparative media studies program. We're wondering, as far as quantitative, or are the differences in each of these um, media platforms so different that we can't, uh, we can't measure across like that? 
Well, you know, I would say that the, the argument about, you know, engagement was an attempt to do that. And um, this is where you and I are aligned. You know, yeah. One of the things I did at Interpublic was um, institute the first, um, I would say, it was the first way of looking at um, a show's audience and their potential love for a show by how much they talked about it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, five years ago, we launched something called Prophecy, which was essentially what you do at yeah. Symphony, which was looking at how people were talking about um, television shows um, online and quantifying the amount and the quality of the buzz that was happening. And we used that in answer to that marketer who said, how come you didn't tell me about Queer Eye? As a way of saying, you know, this show may or, or, or may not be successful. And we actually were able to predict um, a number of hits that the industry, you know, we would go through this ritual of, of analyzing shows as they were announced uh, to say what we thought would work and what wouldn't work. Um, but it was all based in quantifiable data. This was one way for us to pull some qualitative data in and, um, and say that a show like Lost was going to be a success. Most people in the industry, when they saw the Lost pilot, thought, oh my god, this is like Survivor with a cast of thousands. It's on at 8 o'clock on a Wednesday night, and the first thing I saw is a plane blowing up. And what, I'm not going to be able to watch this with my kids. And, um, and no advertiser is going to be interested in this. It's way too violent. There's too many people. There's too many threads. Uh, I, no one thought that show was going to be a hit, except the people in Hollywood who were producing it. Um, and then we did this prophecy analysis and realized that it was number two or three in the rankings of all the new shows that were being discussed before it even went on the air. And I started to sort of tentatively talk to clients. I remember being at the, at the John Deere client, you know, the tractor building. Right? <laughs> I had some interesting clients. You're a new client. Oh, really? I can tell By you some things. All right, good. So, <laughs> we'll talk later. We're we'll the drink So there I was sitting on a tractor telling these guys to buy Lost. And, um, not to get Lost. <laughs> right, not to get Lost. And, they, and I remember thinking to myself, you know, gulp. I hope I'm right here because this is a brand new, you know, analysis. Because the first time I looked at it, I went, "Oh, well, this is this isn't going to work. This is this is terrible. We would never predict this show would be successful." And you know, I got to throw all this data out. And then it premiered with, you know, I don't know, was a twenty-something share, I think, um, when it premiered, and everyone was like, "Oh my God, Lost is a big hit." But the point is that the flip side of that is that there were lots of shows that had very small engaged audiences. Like, um, what was that show on UPN? Um, help me out. Veronica Mars. Veronica Mars. A very small, loyal, engaged audience. Good example would be Friday Night Lights right now. Friday Night Lights is another show like that. Jericho was a show like that. Um, the Office, incidentally, was a show like that. And we kept saying, this is, you know, this is something, you know, it would show up big in the buzz charts, but it would show up very small in the traditional metrics. And uh, this is something that, you know, we kept saying, you know, you got to do, you got to do it. In fact, I, I actually went and gave the data to Ben Silverman, who's now at NBC, but produced The Office and said, Ben, you know, he came to me and said, I need validation that this show's going to work because NBC's going to pull it off the air. And I said, well, this is what I got. I hope it helps you. Um, and they did renew it. And now everybody's talking about, you know, The Office and how great it is. So 
it, you can't always tell by the size and the quantity of the audience whether or not it's something that should be invested in or not invested in. Um, so I would argue that the small engaged fan cultures is something that we really should be looking right. at. Um, and the other thing is that for all this talk about which channels we're all looking at and how to reach consumers, we forget that consumers are channels now. So that's another channel in the mix, is how they are distributing content themselves. Um, and the last thing is that consumers are not just, um, they're not always Luddites, and they're not <coughs> always in lean back posture, and they're not always in a lean forward posture. We are people with different things that happen in our lives. And at some moments, we come home from work, and we wish that somebody would just rub our feet and shut up so we could watch our show. And in other times, you know, we want to be really highly engaged and have a peeps, you know, group of people around, or and still uh, getting your feet rubbed, and still get our time. feet rubbed at the same time. Well, I keep hearing the word engagement come up, and yeah. and as far as questions people are posing right now are also very much about is the system of measuring eyeballs falling away, and do we need something that takes more quality of viewership into account? But but we're all using the term engagement, so I'm just going to ask, put you on the spot. It's the buzzword of the year. Okay. What is engagement? Nobody knows. <laughs> and, and if you're using the term, well, if you're using the term, when you use the term engagement, as you've mentioned it here, what do you mean? Look, uh, okay, well, I <laughs> yeah. will give you my, I will give you, you know, we just, I, I teach a course here at MIT on Mondays, and we went through a whole class on this. But the, the evolution of the term engagement and why the industry is interested in it is sort of a long story. The short story is, you know, we've been through lots of different ways of looking at the marketplace. The fragmentation of the marketplace is out there. The audiences are getting smaller. And now we have technology like DVRs that allow our viewers to skip the commercials. So the industry is looking for ways to reevaluate what they've got, right? To reevaluate the content to make it valuable to advertisers. And the way that we're going to do this is not by the size of the audience, because that is a proposition of diminishing returns. All we see is that the, the size of the audience to individual channels is getting smaller and smaller. So, and we can't do it because, you know, hey, it's a great environment for your commercials, because who knows if they'll ever see your commercials ever again um, with the models we have now. So we have two things. We have integration, right? We have products being put into shows that became really important. And then we have this conversation about how valuable the inventory is whether, based on whether or not people were engaged with it. And engagement is really their way of saying they like it so much that they're not likely to fast forward or skip the, you know, through channels at the commercial break. It's really the way the industry looks at it. Um, the, the, the big bad um, wolf, I think, about that conversation is that it's not a currency. I do not believe it's a currency. And the reason why it's not a currency is because all that tells you is what percentage of the total audience is likely to be more interested and more invested in that content. And when you do that, that's great to know. But if you don't know why they are invested in that content, you don't know why they love being there, you don't know what it is about those characters that they find is redeeming or they feel connected to, that as a marketer, when you put your dollars in that property because you think it's an engaged space, you could do it in a way, especially if you're doing an integration, that will disenfranchise those viewers because you've insulted them in some way. And I've, I've got case studies and examples of that. but. That's the um, short version. Yeah. Well, the, the thing about engagement, and you know, 
first, God blessed the Advertising Research Foundation for taking on what's a fairly impossible mission. And they may have kind of hit the iceberg on it, but you know, what they did recognize is that the way we've thought about advertising and marketing for 50 years basically is wrong. The old model is, okay, people see information, they think about it, it makes them feel some way, and then they go buy the product. And all the research now is flipping that around and saying, people have an initial gut emotional reaction first, then they get information to rationalize their decision, and then they go buy it. And so that, the, from the advertiser side, it's like, well, how then do you, you know, if, if it's not just about how many eyeballs you can put this in front, and then what percent of those will start thinking about it, if it's about how do you, you know, get that gut emotional feel, how do you engage that, um, you know, the fundamental problem with that is that's not a quantifiable entity. Um, emotion is simply not quantifiable. And so I agree with you, it can't be a currency because, you know, the, the, A, it's, it's way too hard to even measure. And can you come up with a measure that is, that is really meaningful that you can put dollars against? And so you need some sort of proxy. And so we're kind of still back to how big is the audience and maybe time spent and some of those kinds of things. Or how many different, you know, we've, we played with this a lot with MIT, as a matter of fact, and it was about... You know, not, it wasn't about audience size. It was like, well, can, maybe we can look at how many different points of contact um, a consumer or a viewer tries to, you know, to access in order to be connected to this content. Are they going to the website? Are they you know, blogging or whatever? You know, the way we've looked at engagement is that um, I, I agree the industry discussion has been predominantly around the engagement with that content. And that's supposed to help you. That, 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 that helps you, again, that helps you if you're selling that content, put a, mon put a monetary value against it. From a marketer and advertiser standpoint, if, what we've... If, if you believe that connection to the content is going to be transferred to the brand when the brand's associated with it. Right. Not, well, I'm that's the sure case. That's really been proven. Right, right. Like, if I'm network and you're the advertiser, I'm going to have to convince you that that's the case. But at least it's given me something to try to debate that with you. Yeah. What we've actually tried to do is with our clients is um, we, have a, we, we have a different need than the content seller has. The content seller has a need to validate the value. We have a need to be able to, the value of where they're going to put the money, right? As our clients, where they're going to put their money to try to connect. So we've tried to look at engagement from a perspective of involvement, but involvement at the channel level in context, and in context in a couple of different levels. How is that consumer using that media channel in their life generally so what toys are in their sandbox and why are they in that sandbox and then at what point does that channel in a natural way either inherent because of latent values inherent values of that channel or because of the way the consumer is using it in what ways does that channel become involved in their decision making in the context of a particular category or in a brand and so we've looked at this with Air Force, someone making a very significant decision around choosing to enter into the armed forces, right? We've also looked at this in a search engine with yellowpages.com and AT&T and that world. We've looked at it on casual dining. But what we've tried to do is put a, an index, and what we've been able to be successful at, but we're, we're continuing to modify it, is we ultimately need an index that helps us on a planning, from a planning perspective, to understand, all right, well, 
where do we put our money against each of these different channels? And so what we've done is rather than having one index of an engagement across all TV, radio, internet, all whatever, you know, we study in the field right now with the new business pitch that we're going into, we're in like 30 different channels in just this one particular piece that we're going to put an index against. And the index, it's not one single index because what, we're, what we actually do is we believe that engagement metric doesn't really become relevant and actionable to you as a marketer if you don't understand the role it's playing in the decision cycle of the consumer. And so we look to unpack the traditional thing of, of awareness, interest, desire, action of the purchase funnel. We actually think that's okay, there's parts of that that are true, but it's very different. When someone goes out to choose to eat at a place they're going to go out to eat in a casual dining, they have a consideration set in their mind of places, but then they filter against the need for that particular moment, narrow it down, and then what interesting thing that comes up is there's a group dynamic that takes place of a negotiation until there's a decision made to where to go. Well, if all of a sudden you've mapped that consumer decision cycle, you can build what we call a communication architecture that says, what are the reachable moments along that decision cycle? When you understand reachable moments, then you can say, well, then let's think about TV and different content and program within TV, radio, online, that play some natural or disruptive role that's relevant to the job that the consumer needs from us at that stage of decision making. And that's the way we look at putting engagement so that you have a metric that's, you may have multiple metrics for the same channel based upon the three or four jobs you're trying to deliver. And then, and then you, you make those planning decisions. The, the, the big disconnect though is that we have that from a planning, but then we have to buy that. That's not the way it's sold. So we have to overlay the metrics that the cost of that channel are being dealt from from, from, a, from a content distributor perspective and then make decisions that we might have done something different if the model didn't put so much cost on this particular one. Does that make sense? Makes, you're dead on. And I think that's the only way that marketers can start to make sense of this. Given fragmentation, it was hard enough when you had to create a plan with TV and radio and print and there were magazines and newspapers and various, and you had five or six things you were juggling in a media plan. Now, uh, you know, our, our parent company, TNS Media Intelligence, tracks 13 different media and there's a bunch they're still not even tracking yet. It becomes totally unwieldy. So at, at some point you have to give up the, the fantasy that you're going to you know, work with each individual medium and get back to what you're really trying to do, which is get to the consumer during those reachable, reachable yeah. moments. You're dead right on So that. rather than engagement being about the content, engagement yeah. being about involvement of what the consumer, it's looking at it from the consumer. But, but oh. one, one question I think that's sort of important in that conversation is, and I'm sorry. No, no, no I just, it's just It's just a question. Is that relevant in every advertiser category? Because frankly, do I need an engaged audience to sell toilet paper? See, what I would tell you is that the way... that moment of truth isn't going to be anywhere in public media, but, right? But the way I'm looking at engagement we'll is... reachable moments. I'm not talking about engagement. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where the... Unless you've got billboards in my bathroom, I don't know. But, but I guess that it's a different... We're coming at a different point of view of when we're saying engagement. I'm not think Engagement doesn't mean passion for the content in the context in which I'm using it. Engagement, in my case, would be, is in the toilet paper case, would be at what point does TV play any sort of a relevant role in the way I go about making a decision to buy toilet paper? And if there's a relevant role in which I'm going to engage with that, either a comparison, an awareness, a brand development, 
then I'm interested in the engagement of that channel vis-a-vis -vis the consumer, not in engagement of the content on the TV program with the consumer. I, I'm not saying that the engagement with the content isn't a valid thing to no, discuss. No, I, I just think it's an important thing to tease out the difference. Yeah. Well, my question, my follow-up question, Maury, was about is there a danger in conflating engagement with the content of the media programming with engagement with the advertising? Because often it seems that the con concept of engagement somehow combines the two in a way that might nece not necessarily be the case. Is an engaging sure. show itself cause people to engage right. with the commercials? Or can you have en really engaging commercials, of course, that air during content or, well, or rolled around content online that isn't necessarily that engaging. Let me give you an old world example of that because when I started in the agency business, I was in the, on the direct marketing side of the business. And as you may notice, you never see a, you know, operators on duty now to take your call kind of commercial between, you know, 8 and 10 p.m. They're always in, in daytime hours or, or later night hours. And it's not, be, it's not just because the prime time uh, network time is, is so expensive is because the audience is too engaged. They don't want to go to the phone and make that call and order that product because they don't want to miss the show. At 1 o'clock in the morning, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, they're watching reruns. They've seen the show five times already. They're not engaged. Yeah, so they'll go engage with your ad. And direct marketers measure that by the number of calls and the dollars of product they sell. That's their measure of engagement. You know, it's interesting because years ago, I think it was like 99, we did a, a test of interactive advertising, you know, interactive cable set-top box applications. And we found that the, the level or the percentage of interaction in the several tests we did was is significantly lower in prime time than it was in other day parts because people don't want to interact. They want to be leaned back in those time periods. Yeah, and that's where they're engaged with content and that's the experience they want at that moment, and they don't want these other experiences. And in that case, it becomes more relevant to you as a marketer to understand the mindset the consumer's in, yeah. rather than trying to tell me that I should pay more because that's more engaged, when in fact that could be screwing me more by getting on that because they're more engaged with what, if the mindset I'm trying to reach right. at that time is different. Yeah. And that's where I think it breaks down. because, And that's the complexity of it that I think is really difficult, is, is, is the... The, the metric you need to monetize it versus the metric you need to market and connect. It, yeah. They're they're yeah. they're coming at it from two different uh, starting points and two different desired endpoints. Bruce, you were about to completely disagree with all. No, of I think I'm dying yeah. to hear it. At least three times in the last. <laughs> no, no, no. The goal the goal is to sell product. I mean, let's be honest. I mean, the goal Absolutely. is to sell. So we can call it any nice pseudonym we want to call it. Engagement, what have? No, the goal is to sell. And if it's if it doesn't help sell the product, then it's not worth buying. So we can call it anything we want, but we've got it. That's, that's the ultimate goal of an advertiser, of a marketer, is, is to sell the product, whether it's to, you know, immediately or in the future and build a brand or what have you. That's what it's all about, is selling the product. Well, but be careful about that. I mean, you, you, you got to the right place about it. Maybe about branding, maybe about a future sale. Yeah, but ultimately it, that's the goal. If, if yeah. it doesn't sell today, tomorrow, over time, then, then it's worthless. But see, you know, the today tomorrow stuff is really easy to track, and that's that. There's no there's no mystery to that. It's the tomorrow stuff that I think where all of this really. And that's comes where to ad agencies make money because it's. <laughs> that's well, no, it's but it's true. But you know, the toilet paper ad, no one's going to jump up out of their chair, and cop in their car, and go to a supermarket to buy their toilet paper because they saw a TV commercial. Although, so if you're out of toilet paper and it's an interactive <laughs> ad and you can press the button and have it delivered, that might work. Especially if you're having some intestinal problems. <laughs> but, um, that would be contextual and relevant. But the, the, hard, you know, the hard thing... 
Uh, we better drop that line. Yeah, right. Um, but you know, the hard thing here is branding does freaking work. It does work, and it does drive decisions. And consumers will tell you that they don't pay any attention to ads and they don't believe them. And when you ask them, why did you buy this, they'll come up with all sorts of reasons. But at the end of the day, branding really does work. And that's the hard thing of how do you quantify that emotional connection that the consumer's not even aware of because it is at such a primal kind of level that they get to the store, they're standing in front of the toilet paper, you know, rows of toilet paper, and their hand goes to Sharma. Why? I don't know. Like I, I really think that uh, this line of conversation has gone down the toilet. <laughs> <laughs> that was a Henry Jenkins oh, joke, by the way. <laughs> You'll get plenty more when he moderates the next panel, I'm sure. But I actually had uh, a question, and this was about something Stacy brought up, and, and it's about uh, buzz or social, social connections around uh, these issues. And I had a, a good exchange with Jim over email. Jim, as you saw, was a... Uh, only joined the panel recently, so we, we yesterday actually. So uh, we were conversing about his role at Symphony and and his work on social media. And you said a couple things that interested me. One was that buzz is not necessarily about audience measurement, but it's about uh, about sort of discussion and loyalty and and these sorts of issues. The other thing you said was criticism is a positive metric, and 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 I thought that was a really interesting perspective. I'd like to another shift discussion a little bit, yeah. but I'd like to talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Stacy was right on, and, you know, I've quoted you a lot when I'm trying to sell to a client to say, look, Interpublic is using this stuff to predict the, how, the hit shows. So, Sorry, I thank ruined you. that for you by leaving, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> I won't tell if you won't tell. Um, yeah, because people, you know, I, I do often get asked by our clients about, well, can we use this to measure the, you know, impact of a viral marketing campaign we do? And it's like, No. Because people really don't talk a whole lot about advertising. People talk about what's important to them and, oh my god, advertising isn't important to them. What a shock. Um, but what, it, what they do talk about gives you some tremendous insights into you know, what is important to them and therefore how you should position your products and, and where you should position them and all these kinds of things. The reason I say that criticism is an important metric um, is, you know, you know as, as marketers, we're way too afraid of hearing bad things about our products. You know, our job is to tell the world how perfect our product is, and it's going to, you know, totally, you know, make you happier, sexier, you know, richer, more famous, and all that kind of stuff. Um, but when you get those highly engaged consumers, and they'll tell you, oh, we love this about your product, but, you know, I don't like this. They're trying to help you. They're trying to help you get better. And if they didn't care that much they wouldn't want you to get better. And that was one of the things that, that I saw that, that was extremely interesting in some research I did, um, actually with my now competitor, uh, Pete Blackshaw at Nielsen Online, um, where we surveyed his panel back when he was doing a company called Planet Feedback, which by its nature was trying to get consumer feedback. And we did a survey on how much did consumers, those consumers uh, trust ads in different media. And, you know, kind of no surprise with that kind of a group, um, this is like 2002, even before the social media thing got big, you know, they trusted, you know, online discussion boards and things like that more than they trusted any traditional media. Um, then I redid that at Forrester with our technographics panel, which is a, you know, traditional market research, random digit dial, statistically representative, blah, 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 blah. 
And the numbers were even lower for traditional advertising, which my interpretation of that was people are so fed up with, you know, mainstream people so fed up with traditional advertising, they're not even going to engage with it anymore. You take this engaged group of people, they will still engage with it, but they had the same problems with clutter, with not believing the ads, all those kinds of things, but they're still engaged and they want to fix it and they want to play a role in fixing it. So, um, you know, that's what, that's why I say this is such a dramatic change in the relationship between brands and their audiences because it's no longer about, you know, I'm going to sit up here in Boston, in Cincinnati, in wherever, and I'm going to create a product that I think is really great, and then I'm going to go out there and beat consumers over the head in all 13, 20 media I can find with as much money as I can, can, uh, can spend until they, 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 they buy this product. Um, now, I can enlist those consumers early on in that development and say, here's what we're going to do. What do you think? And you're going to get lots of feedback. And you know, as you put the product out there in the market, you'll get more feedback. And guess what? You're going to find line extensions. You're going to find new ways of marketing it. You're going to find new places uh, to market that product. And so it's going to become, if marketers will let go of that kind of total control, which is a scary thing. And as a classically trained marketer, even for me, it's a scary thing. Um, if you develop that kind of relationship with consumers, I think it's going to be far, far better for business uh, in the future. It's interesting. I once, um, we were tossing around these, some ideas about how marketers look at, at their portfolio of brands. Um, and no one ever challenges that assumption at all. You just assume you're a marketer, you have a portfolio of brands, right? Mm. You're Viacom, you've got all of your, your networks, your Turner, you have all your networks, your um, Coca-Cola, you have all of your, you know, your line extensions and products. And, and someone said, well, what if they weren't a portfolio of brands? What if they were a portfolio of consumers? And we didn't think about how we're selling brands, but we're actually meeting the needs of sets of consumers. Um, and it's, a, it's, it's, uh, it's not that, it's, it's a not so subtle tweak on the way that we look at things, but it is um, in many ways a nod to the fact that, you know, we're not, it's not a one way um, conversation anymore. It's not a, we're going to make this product and we're going to jam it down your throat. We're not going to make this piece of content and put it out there. It's now becoming a two-way conversation. In fact, you know, for those of you who are online out there, there's um, a site called, I think it's called Bring Back the Love. Has anyone seen this? Bringbackthelove.com, right? Where it's a it's a thirty second ad and it's a, a guy who's wearing a t shirt that says advertiser and oh, a girl oh, yeah. who wears a t shirt that that says uh, consumer MS. and they yeah. have this conversation yeah. about how they don't talk anymore right and uh, it's a wake up call for if you you're out there and you have someone nearby who can share and look over yeah. do do take a look because I know this is a world of continuous partial you be attention careful what you type in there though I think <laughs> yes right. <laughs> See, now nah, I didn't even make that joke. Um, but, you know, the, the, the fact of the matter, it really always was that way. I mean... Yeah, we, but in a different, we, of a different degree. We, we, we had this fantasy that as marketers, you know, we could, like, beat the consumer into submission and that whatever we put out there, we believed. But anybody who ever did any copy testing on their ads, when you look at the results, you're going, like, 
how the heck did they get that out of my ad? You know, it was, it was always pretty shocking. Well, that's but, the conversation about how meaning is made, right? Is the meaning yeah. in what you make or is the meaning that, in what you make of it? Yeah, and that's, you know, again, that's part of the ARF's thing around, around engagement is the co-creation of meaning. And it always happened. We didn't know it happened, and we didn't know what to do about it because we didn't know it was there. And now we can see that co-creation of meaning happening. And, you know, by then meeting the consumer on their grounds, what, you know, what that product means to them, we can build stronger relationships with them than we can by simply trying to surround them with 360-degree integrated marketing. Right. Well, and what, what has changed, though, is that most of that trying to have that co-creation historically took place through the creative process of what you put into your commercial and how you how you delivered your message and you made sure that you connected in that in that relevant way. Then we started saying, well, let's just, to your point, let's take that same message and just everywhere in your life, so everywhere you turn, you see us, and that's good, then you'll know that's us. What's changed dramatically, though, is that the channels and the touch points that we can connect and interact with the consumer are now as much the message as the creative is. Because now, what we're really trying to do, and, and, and frankly, it's a struggle. I mean, uh, it, at our agency and others, I know there are some agencies that are, you know, digital interactive shops that come up and they think that they think that way already naturally, and traditional agencies that, well, no, this is different, I've got to change. It, it's a cultural shift of, of really, I think, a blending and a blurring of advertising and marketing and saying that really they should never have been separated. They're, they're the same. And so, so, rather, so, so my point is that rather than just historically being able to change what we say in our message and be better from a brand positioning and message strategy in our creative and do it better and more, more engaged commercials. We now have to be smarter about engaging with the various channels that help facilitate the interactive dialogue that we're talking about. And, and that's scary for the control part that people don't want to give up, that the, the clients don't want to give up to the consumer. Um, it's the control part of how the thing gets funded and monetized for industries that, <laughs> that have made money historically from this old model. Um, but it's what, and, and, and to your point, it's not, Bruce, it's not today. The, the masses are not fully there. But I guess the, what I think, though, is that it's going to hit us so much faster than we think. And if we're not changing the, the parameters of how we, how we measure and plan that way, then I think it... Well, what if you, what if you plan too fast? And I, I go back to the example I made at the beginning. I just had to say, I hadn't talked for a while. I like, took the second quarter off there for a second. Uh, but now I'm ready for the third quarter. Uh, we got a lot of time. Uh, so, you know, what happens if you think there's going to be 50 million DVR households by 2003, and there's not? So what happens if you think this is going to happen by 2010, and, it, and it's not? I think that's where, you know, when we talk about the future of entertainment, I think it's very important to not be nebulous with the future, but say three to five years. You know, I can take out a crystal ball and say, oh, you know, in the future, it'll be like that cartoon. Oh, it'll be so neat. Well, you know, my job as a research analyst is to really try to understand the next three to five years and say, where do we really stand today and where we're we going? So let's take the concept of DVRs, because we've talked about it a little bit. Where does DVR actually stand today? Not everyone has a, has a DVR. In fact, over three-quarters of all households do not have a DVR, okay? Do not have a DVR. How did you, one of the, one of the, the if I had a, uh, uh, a PowerPoint presentation, I would show you this little chart that I have of the evolution of DVRs because it's a great proxy for other technologies. Mm. Well, we see the best of show in 1999 was this little company called, 
TiVo. TiVo. And replay TV. How many households have a standalone TiVo today? Standalone. Well, you, okay, you've already oversampled. You've already oversampled because the number is 1.6 million. 1.6 million households have a standalone TiVo today. So it's less than 1%. Yeah, a little bit more than 1%. Yeah. Wasn't there 108 million households? Yeah, so one point, never mind. We won't get it. We'll talk. Here, I got, I got my calculator here. So that's a standalone TiVo. This is the media studies group, not the, not the mathematics. <laughs> um, Let's not go. With direct TV, there's 4 million. But today, anyhow, yeah. so how did, how, did T, how did DVRs evolve? They did not evolve by poll. There right. was not a consumer poll right. for DVRs. As a standalone product, it went blop, 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 blop. When did it start taking off? When it was put into a satellite TV box. What was the first company to a million DVRs? EchoStar. Dish Network was the first company to a million DVRs, and half the people didn't even know they had. <laughs> they really didn't right. because it was just put in the box. It was free. They didn't know they had them. So you where does DVR actually stand today? Not everyone has a, has a DVR. In fact, over three-quarters of all households do not have a DVR, okay? Do not have a DVR. How did you, one of the, one of the, the if I had a, uh, uh, a PowerPoint presentation, I would show you this little chart that I have of the evolution of DVRs because it's a great proxy for other technologies. Mm. Well, we see the best of show in 1999 was this little company called TiVo, TiVo. and Replay TV. How many households have a standalone TiVo today? Standalone. Well, you, okay, you've already oversampled. You've already oversampled because the number is 1.6 million. 1.6 million households have a standalone TiVo today. So it's less than 1%. Yeah, a little bit more than 1%. Yeah. Well, wasn't there 108 million households? Yeah, so one point. Never mind. We won't get it. We'll talk. Here. I got, I got my calculator here. So that's a standalone TV. This is the media studies group, not the, not the mathematics. Um, Let's not go. With direct TV, there's 4 million. But today, anyhow, yeah. so how did, how, did T, how did DVRs evolve? They did not evolve by poll. There was not a consumer poll for DVRs. As a standalone product, it went blop, 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 blop. When did it start taking off? When it was put into a satellite TV box. What was the first company to a million DVRs? EchoStar. Dish Network was the first company to a million DVRs, and half the people didn't even know they had. <laughs> they really didn't because it was just put in the box. It was free. They didn't know they had them. So you continue with the evolution of DVRs. That was about 2003. When did it start even further ramping up? is when it was put in a cable box. And when did it really take off is when Comcast slammed it in a cable box with your HD. With your HD. So when you got HD, you got a DVR. Pull versus push. When we look at the adoption of a lot of these technologies, we have to understand the differences between consumer pull and provider push. And that creates a lot of different effects in usage and what have you. So here we sit today with about 22, 23% of households having DVR. About, by my estimation, by my research, on the high end, one-sixth of their time is spent watching recorded programming. One-sixth of their time. So overall, today, in this world where we can watch anything we want, whenever we want to, want to watch it, my estimation is that between DVR viewing and on-demand viewing, about 5% of all viewing is on-demand or DVR. 5%. But it's going to ramp up, right? 
I've got one of those hockey sticks for DVR, by the way. I've got it. <laughs> it's going to get there. It's, it's going to get there. It's going to get to 50% of households by 2012. Why? Not because of consumer demand. By the way, every year we do the research, interest levels in DVR have not increased in the last six years we've done this study. They have not increased. They are the same every year between 14 and 15% of non-DVR owners. So they're being replaced. How is it going to grow to 50%? Because it's being pushed into the home by the cable provider and the satellite TV provider. In my forecast by 2012, 15%, and this is a liberal forecast, 15% of all viewing on television will be on demand or DVR. That's a lot. Don't get me wrong. But I, I, you know, I, yeah. I hate to be the, the, not a Luddite. I just want to be the perspective here that we've got to look at this future and say, even in a world where 50% of households have DVR, it's still only going to represent about 15% of TV viewing that, in, by my estimation, will be on demand. Jim, I know you've got a response to that. I just wanted to make yeah, a note I'm, before we I'm gonna, move. I'm going to violently agree. Uh, oh, okay. Well, Which I just wanted to, I just wanted to say I, had, uh, I was ready to take the break for the third quarter. <laughs> I, had, I had mentioned earlier that, that I look out over the crowd and I see a lot of very intelligent-looking people. And I think it might be great to get them directly involved in the conversation. Mm -hmm. So while Jim uh, gives a response to you, if, uh, if you all get the mics ready and you all might have some questions, um, we'll move yeah. on after you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I was just going to say that y you hit the real point when you talked about the 5% and the 15% of the time viewing. You know, that's the real point to take away from any of that stuff. Because, again, that's what the consumer is really doing, and that's ultimately where, you know, the marketers... Uh, want to know and where they have to place their money. So forget 50 million DVRs. You know, and I, I tell our clients, forget 70 million blogs. What the heck does that? Mm -hmm. That's an irrelevant number. You know, it's it's look at those those minutes of time spent with that. But the one thing I will incur, mm -hmm. I, I will uh, I will uh, vehemently uh, counter myself is it's fi it's it, that's 15 percent of all viewing time, as has been brought yeah. up before. It differs per program. Sure. Prime sure. time broadcast programming, that's being hit the hardest. Yep. Um, and it's, in fact, when you look at it, it's by exactly. schedule. It's when there's exactly. two or three shows scheduled at the same time yeah. is when you really get the usage in the broadcast side. But on the cable yeah. side, it's not really being, being hit as hard. On the sports side, it's not yeah. really being hit as hard. And, and if you look at original versus acquired series, it's very different, too. Yeah. An original series will be DVR'd at a much higher rate than mm. an acquired series that runs in syndication or, mm. you know, mm -hmm. one order on TNT or TBS. Yeah. And, and the one other thing, yeah. I, you know, going back to the TiVo thing, because I saw an article in USA Today, today last week, TiVo has this sample of 20,000 of their users. Well, you know, we should all know that the size of the sample is not the key. The goal of the sample is to reflect the population. Right. If there's one thing that you can remember from me, except being the curmudgeon, um, <laughs> the goal of the sample is to reflect the population. So what does that TiVo sample represent? It represents TiVo users. TiVo users do not represent DVO, DVR users. So you've got a nice sample of TiVo users. Mm -hmm. Do not think that they represent all DVR users. And I'm sure we have some questions from amongst the crowd, so just raise your hand and we'll bring a mic to you. Hello. Um, Hello. If you could stand up also uh, when you ask uh, a question laptops. so we can see you. <laughs> we can see you. <laughs> it's in my lap. Um, but I was just wondering, um, when, you, when you're making your projections about adoption or behavior um, over some, some amount of future, um, how do you figure in the fact that the, the, the people you're, you're looking at are getting older uh, over that time. 
And as people get older, they're, they, they do different things. They die? They, they do everything. I mean, that would but, be one thing. You know, that, that 15 year olds, for instance, in five years are going to be 20. Yeah. And so but their they are not the behavior they, is going to be and different. And that's where it's differs with things like television and home, home ownership. Because that 15, and that's why I think you, it's a very good question, because that's when you have to set the parameters on time. How yeah. the 15 year old may affect the world in 2025 is very different than how they will affect the world in, in 2012. So, you know, I guess you're asking, how do I do a forecast? My forecast is based on demand and supply. It's based on my consumer research and also how the provider side will be rolling these products out. Certainly, you know, one of the nice things about having a contained um, cycle on the forecast is that those factors uh, of age really do not take effect that much in a three to five year time frame. They'll be much more seen in a 10, 15 year time frame. Well, no, I like the question, you know, question. not, not yeah. in terms of the forecast element, but the, what I do want to say is I particularly hate seeing research as interesting as the, you know, the millennial generation is. I hate seeing research about how we have to study this generation because they're teenagers, they're multitaskers. I hear, you hear this in the industry all the time. I've got a teenager. And they are listening to music in their ears. And they're watching TV. And they've got the internet. And I've never seen anyone. And I'm like, well, that's great. That's your teenager. But, and it, it may be true that that's what they do. But my response to that is, well, you know, when they're Tell you know, to get a job. when they're crushed by life because you know they're in a dead end job and they've got yeah. like a three year old <laughs> hanging on their hip and they can't pay the rent and all they want to do is lay there and watch TV and not multitask, then come back and tell me about that. You know, it's just, <laughs> I just I find it it's great to study how things are changing and how the younger generation perceives things. I think from a sociological perspective. It's great, but when we start talking about their actual behavior and, and predicting that because they do this today, they will do this when right. they're actually in an adult it's mode. It's only relevant for needing to connect with them now. Yeah. yeah. As opposed to when they're exactly. 20 or 30. I, I was having that exact discussion uh, Wednesday morning with a guy named Emmanuel Rosen who wrote uh, a book called The Anatomy of Buzz, one of, the, one of the early books in word of mouth marketing. And I couldn't agree with you more. It's like... Can, can, you know, write us all back, those, those of you at MIT, you know, write us back in about 10 years and let us know how much you're still multitasking and how much time <laughs> you're spending on MySpace and connecting with all the cool bands and things. Hey. <laughs> We're better middle-aged people. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll be dead by then, so I guess your email will bounce. Ten years. Good God. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's kind of along those lines. I'm, I, work in, in, I work for Cartoon Network, so I'm coming from the children's market. And I have a friend who has a four-year-old, and we were over at their house, and they were watching some show, and the doorbell rang, and she said, Daddy, pause it. So she's used, she yeah, doesn't know the old, old you know, standard uh, industry, industry standards. So I guess, what kind of research have you guys been doing with the kids' market? And if we're trying to target that audience right now, how do we go about that? You should call Jeff Grant, who I'm sure you know works for me in New York <laughs> and see what he's doing. Um, yeah, I mean, in that sense, it, it's very relevant because you're looking at what their perspectives are and you're marketing to them. Um, there's a lot that's being done that, like, you know, it's a very tricky thing when you want to study kids and what kids do because, you know, there's lots of regulation around that, in particular, 
when you're doing it for the purpose of trying to sell them products. So um, it's one thing to create content for them. It's another thing to, to do it for the purpose of selling advertising. So as I'm sure you know, since you work for the network. Um, but you know, I, I, since I'm just new to the, the Turner family, I'm, I don't have that all in my brain, but I'd be happy to find out for you. Hi, Mark Davis, Yahoo. Um, so there's a little bit of discussion of word of mouth, but strangely not very much of it. And, and the reason I want to raise this is that, you know, TV definitely has very large reach and, and large share. But with the internet, we have trackability not only of consumption, but also of diffusion. How people share, how they communicate, how trends spread. And given that so much of buying is a word of mouth decision, as opposed to just a brand decision. And now we're in an age where TV and the internet are coming together. New forms of advertising and new forms of measurement will come about, which are really focused on the most powerful form of marketing there is, is an endorsement by an authentic advocate for the brand that you trust. Right? Not a message crafted very beautifully you know, by the agencies, pushed out to people that you know maybe a little bit about, but messages delivered by people you trust, who you think are knowledgeable, and whose opinions you care about. Mm -hmm. Those messages now become trackable and they become, we can measure and understand how word of mouth actually functions. How do you see that affecting the way that you guys do your jobs? Enormously, although I will say, you know, in this moment of time, not everyone's out there in, in the, you know, digital space creating a trail of how they're recommending things. But, you know, my vision of where this goes is that you know we get the set-top box data, we get their broadband data because the same companies are delivering that pipe. You know whether you're getting online or you're going into, you know, a television experience, and all of that stuff is trackable, and you can make, uh, you can connect those dots between what it is they're seeking in their entertainment space and what it is they're actually buying. I mean, isn't that? what Facebook has just announced in the last week, that they're giving people the capability to recommend um, products to each other and being able to track that. It, my vision, and what I would love to do if I could, would be to get my hands on one of these social networking databases. And what I would call, we talk about reach and whether or not it, we're in a reach medium. I call it the re-aggregation of meaningful sums because it's not necessarily the, the, the reach of one distribution mechanism, but it's finding the commonalities and the connective tissue between what I want to buy, how I want to define myself, what pieces of culture I love, that creates these small segments that then become buying targets. Um, that's, and I'm sure at Yahoo, you guys have got 20 people wrapping their brains around it, so I, I, th that would be yeah. fantastic. You know? <laughs> well, th th there's, I'll do two things. One, I'll put on my Word of Mouth Marketing Association hat, and you know, it's something that, that was one of the early things the association did, was start to try to put together a framework, or what, what are the things you need to measure, and how do you measure them? And quite frankly, I think it's a little overly complicated and arcane. Um, but, you know, a good, a good starting point. And so we're still working on refining that. Um, the, you know, the one issue is that if you, if you talk to Ed Keller, Brad Fay at the Keller Fay Group, 80% of, of word of mouth is still offline. So as much as there is going on on all of these social media forums, we're still human beings and we're over the water cooler at work and stuff like that. So you're still only getting kind of a proxy. And 
you know, how much of that, you know, Keller Fay group is actually able to capture, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure. But the, the thing to me that is, is the most fascinating, I'm sure you've seen the, the never-ending friending report that MySpace did. I don't know how many of you have seen this. Um, uh, and I was just on a panel with Heidi Browning from MySpace. And uh, the, the, the shocking revelation of, of that report was that, yeah, you can stick banners around on the pages. And yeah, you'll, you'll reach some people and you'll influence some of them to, to like your product. And you can put up a brand page, you know, and have, you, you'll have a bunch of people friend it, and they'll be influenced, and that'll be nice. But the real thing is to put little widgets, logos, other kind of brand assets that your loyal users can take and put on their profile. And that reaches an order of magnitude more people. And in fact, in this study um, that, that was uh, designed and executed by a guy named Rex Briggs, whom you may have ever come across in the online advertising world. Um, his company's Marketing Evolution. Marketing Evolution, yeah. Um, he found that something like 70% of the total impact on purchase intent was not from the banners, was not from the brand profile page, but was from those little widgets that, again, a person genuinely says, I love this brand. It's part of my identity. See all my friends. I want you to see this about me, and I think you sh it should be part of your identity, too. Totally different way of marketing products. Incredibly exciting. Yeah, and, it's, and, and it is very, obviously, at that level, each of those, going back to what I said before, we're dissecting what are the jobs you have for different channels. Those jobs are very measurable and very trackable. And as, as a marketer, we, we, have, we absolutely need to be thinking about, it's not simply, I mean, to, to your point, is that it's not simply putting up space, like, like taking what you would do in another medium and putting it online, it's using, it's helping to facilitate that word of mouth activity. Being careful to not cross that line that um, many marketers, we have examples of, right, that have, where um, facilitate does not mean create, right? That, that if it's not authentic, if you actually are trying to pretend to put a, space up of kids with their back to school products and then you're writing it with adults and 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 it's not really authentic and not real and obviously that that's not what we mean by facilitate facilitate i think means thinking about how to make it relevant to what that person wants to do giving them the stuff to create their own material being able to within your own website with the content and the blog material that you have using RSS feeds and other stuff that help people, once they like it, they can tag it and they can pull it, which, by the way, helps your search optimization every time they pull your RSS. It's that kind of stuff that we're trying to educate our clients about that you've got to be smarter about. Um, one of the best examples, I think, is what, what Nike and Apple did with, with the, the running shoe and, and being able to take the... Um, I mean, we, at JSNM, we had an interesting... Before widgets were called widgets, we actually, with Southwest, came up with a very interesting idea of the ding case, which has been a great case study. It's kind of a clunky widget as widgets go today because it sits in the desktop tray and you've got to actually, you know, it's not as easy to easily portable as widgets are these days. But, but the point was is that we knew we had a business challenge at Southwest, right? We had inventory that needed to be sold, seats on the planes, that if we could sell at an incremental lower, who cares, at least we'd get more revenue. Well, we also had a customer that, by the, guess what, wants to spend less, right? So how do we connect with the consumer? Well, put your profile on what, the, on what places you fly often and put it in your place. And every time we got, re we got inventory available, 
it'll ding on your computer. It says, hey, this is available. Do you want to go? We'll give you a lower deal. You can do it. So it's, it's, it's that kind of facilitation of the digital experience and the social media that we absolutely have to help our clients do. Then when you do that, there's very clear metrics of what you're, what you're tracking because there's a specific job. And that job now isn't about reach. It's about what was the outcome, the response analytics you were looking to get. And I kind of argue that I think we need to take more of a view on the way we use TV and traditional channels in response analytic point of view as well. But response meaning that the specific job you give what you're doing on TV and radio and print. There's one other interesting piece about the viral and the word of mouth that we don't often consider. And that is that, you know, look, uh, most of us in the industry are concerned about the fact that big media is going to go away, big reach vehicles are going to go away, that everything's fragmenting so much, it'll be like the long tail of the internet and there'll be all these little audiences all over the place. Um, but the reality is that, that the world is pretty, you know, forget about media. The world generally is pretty fragmented. I mean, we are at once connected to everything and anything we want to be and disconnected in our, in our physical lives, right? So now we've got all these, these online virtual worlds popping up. And, you know, what we forget is that in these social milieus that we build, whether they be the MySpaces or the Facebooks or, the, you know, whatever it is, um, we have to be able to indicate to somebody else who we are and what we're about. And the things that we pull that tell people who we are and what we are about come from pop culture and come from mass culture. And so it has to have a place to live and disseminate. Otherwise, we have nothing, we have no points of reference with each other. It's not like, I like this band. Oh, yeah, I saw that band and they live in Timbuktu. It, there, is, there is nothing like that if we get so fragmented. So I don't think that mass media goes away for that reason, because it needs to exist. Well, I think one of the amazing things is it kind of picks up on what you're talking about. When we think about the world today, and the average household has 100 channels of television, why do, you know, and we see the, report, the studies that now cable is beating broadcast. Well, shouldn't cable be beating broadcast? I mean, there's, there's four channels that still occupy 40% of viewing. That mm. says something about human nature. <laughs> that says something about the way consumers behave. Sorry. We are not fragmented in 100 equal sets. That's still this pull, and it's, it's not true generationally at all, but still this pull towards the common is still there. So we will have that long tail where there's a lot of people watching. You know, a, a one rating is different from what it was before because it's a very targeted one rating. But to me, it's amazing when you look at consumer behavior and say even in this world of 100 different choices, still four networks are drawing 35, 40% of the audience. It does talk about human nature, kind of as, as, what, you're, as what you were saying. Hi there. So um, apart from word of mouth stuff, I'd be really curious to hear what other sort of non-traditional engagement metric or metrics in general you think are gonna, going to be good or are currently good for measuring engagement, whatever that means, because I'm not sure that there's a consensus on what that means. But, you know, so word of mouth is one. What are some other ones? I mean, I think it, it's, as, it's, it's as varied as the things you create of what you want to do with the channel. I mean, at the end of the day, it boils down to people that you're connecting with. How do you want to connect to them? You want them to think, feel, or do certain things. So metrics need to be gauged around those thoughts, feelings, and actions that you're desiring of them. The softer metrics of, of, that traditionally get associated with branding of thinking and feeling are, are very critical because they're precursors to action. We don't act 
before there's at least some thought, conscious or so, or, or otherwise. And so, I mean, I, I think that the the sky the limit is the creativity with which you you determine. Um, well, I guess maybe not creativity, but the, the, the definition that you put up front um, of what is, it, what is our intent of what we need our business outcome to be, and let's map it backward to what we need our audience to think, feel, or do that will get there. And then in between there, there are numerous different metrics that are, in my mind, typically fall, will fall into th thought, feel, or act. And let me put a little more structure around that, or not me. I'm going to quote Rex Briggs again, because he's an absolutely brilliant researcher. Um, he wrote a book called What Sticks, and I think mm -hmm. you should all read it. And what he talks about in there is exactly that. It's not return on investment. He says, screw return on investment. What, what, in, in a lot of cases, again, in those cases where you're selling toilet paper, you're not expecting people to jump in the car and go to the store and buy it right then. And by the time they do get around to buying it, you know, there are you know, modeling techniques to then try to correlate it back to that event, but it's expensive, it's time-consuming, it's difficult, it's complicated, and from a marketing perspective, the world's moved on by the time you can figure that out. So his perspective instead is return on marketing objective. What are you trying to accomplish? And then you know, pick the right metric for that. And you know, uh, as, you know, launching a new product, getting, building awareness, totally legitimate marketing objective. Repositioning a product when a new competitor launches, totally legitimate marketing objective. How do you measure that in sales? I don't know. But you know, if you're going to do an ad and the objective of that ad is, I want people to know my product exists, then that's where you've got to start with, with the metric. And so this, you know, I've, I've ranted on this before. I think this whole you know, ROI, you've got to do, you know, everything in marketing has to be accountable to sales. Why, yes, it's about selling product, but there are things you do in marketing that lead to future sales that you're gonna, you need to do, you should do, and if you don't do, you undercut your sales in the long term, and you have to do them whether you can, you can tie it to sales or not. And at least that return on marketing objective, you can go to your C-level and you can explain to him, well, we have to build awareness first you know, before we can get to sales, and this campaign was successful because we took awareness from 50% to 70%, or whatever the number is. You know, one, one thing I just want to comment real quick on the, with the metrics and, and being able to tie those behaviors to sales. Um, there are some techniques that I personally believe are going to revolutionize, revolutionize the way modeling is done within mm -hmm. the marketing space. Traditional econometrics and statistics based or regression technology is used all the time. And market mix model now is to the point that everyone talks about almost like get me one of those sort of things. And, and it, has their pl it has its place because it will tell you based on your base, your base activity of sales the contribution of your different activities toward the incremental up or down. Problem is though is that it doesn't help much of, very much the people that are having to make the planning and decision making around it's great for the CFO because he can get a number and it says alright well then we can give you your budget next year. Um, there's more you can do with that. But the field that fascinates me, and I've been working on this in the last six, seven years, that, I, that is, is slowly but surely being adopted in our space in, in, in marketing, is um, using complexity science techniques to take nonlinear approaches with agent-based simulations and others to create virtual environments where you can test and explore new tactics um, in a way that 
you, you can't do with statistics-based technology. And, and it's basically built around the, the premise that let's, with metrics that we've tracked over time, let's create rules of engagement for these virtual agents in this, in this environment. Mm -hmm. And then within that environment, let's introduce different stimulus. And based upon those rules of how they interact, let's let pattern recognition and, and computation go through and get emergent behavior to come up. And then you're not looking at patterns, but you're not looking at correlations from statistics. You're looking at patterns that emerge with, with behaviors in, in complex systems. Why does this matter? And hopefully everyone, you know, hopefully this is somewhat germane to what we're talking about here. <laughs> is that if I think you Sam's have, given up on us. If, if you have that kind of a, of a tool in your toolkit, what you can do is the, the knowledge you've gained around the decision cycle of how a consumer behaves and makes decisions, and the metrics that you've tracked with your different the elasticities you have of the different channels that you've used in the past and the impact they have on behavior, you can plug all of those into a system that creates a pretty powerful scenario planning tool to explore and to deal with the crossed arms and like, yeah, right sort of thing, to explore the, the new tactics that you may take in the social media space, in other channels that you haven't ever explored, and try to uncover the dynamic of human behavior that will emerge. And, and, and I believe that it's much more appropriate and applied to the challenging complex decisions we're dealing with that statistics and regression-based technology fall short of in terms of from a planning perspective. Well, as has been the precedent set uh, in the previous panel, we're going to move now to the lightning round, which we want to just get in as many questions as <laughs> oh, we can. So okay. if you all on your end can just think toward I making your questions succinct. <laughs> And if, we can, if you all can think toward trying to make sure we fit in Let's several more questions it. before the panel ends, we appreciate it. Can I have one of those? <laughs> Get me one of those. Is this on? Um, um, I'm a television scholar, so one of the things that's very frustrating to me is that from where I sit, metrics and measurements that the industry uses to make decisions are closed, proprietary, black, bo black box systems that scholars have very little access to, and then audiences themselves have very little access to. All we see is the top 20 Nielsen every week. And we know that's not what's driving the boat for the most part. Um, and I'm just wondering, and this may not be a question some of you can answer because it's more of a sort of threat to your jobs, but closed black box proprietary systems have been shown to be good at some things but not so good at others. And other, being at MIT, open source, uh, multi-user emergent systems are another way of solving problems. And I'm just wondering what you think a open source metrics system in which you could get a lot of different particip participants helping to shape the data collection and analysis might give you that you're not getting right now. It would actually be useful and helpful much more than what's existing today, I think. I don't, will it happen? It's so much money is tied into those metrics and so many people's jobs in so many people's retirement accounts that without changing that. Well, it's not so much the, the, the investment in the systems as much as you, we have a history of a currency. Yeah. And it's very dif difficult to move from one currency to another currency. Now, in Europe, for example, there's, um, there's what they, they call these JICs, these joint industry committees that decide um, market by market what kind of measurement system, you know, who's going to be providing the measurement in that country after so many years. So it's not a Nielsen monopoly, let's say. Here, it's, it's a lot harder because, you know, once, look, we're going through this right now. 
with the currency changing as we've known it for so many years with something called C3. So we've, now we've gone from yep. live ratings to some sort of blended Fakakata thing that's got, you know, DVR viewership for three days plus commercial minutes minus this and added that. And, and by the way, because there's so much process in that, we don't see that data for three to four weeks after that actually runs. So this is a marketplace that goes day by day. Imagine that you are a retailer and you're running a sale Saturday and Sunday, and your spot is supposed to run Thursday and Friday, but for some reason, somehow, something happens, and the spot doesn't run. Well, now the network's got to make you good somewhere, but guess what? We don't really even know how well that thing performed or didn't perform for three weeks, and the sale is well you know, beyond being done. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, with, with the way that the currency is set up, there's a lot of dependence on trying to understand where we're going based on where we've been. That's one thing. Mm -hmm. The other thing is that you know, lots of money rolls around based on this, these numbers. And for companies, uh, for major media companies to forecast how well they're going to do, and these are public companies with, you know, with stock symbols, it's very hard to be able to predict how we're going to do if suddenly the currency is going to change and we're going to have a whole new way of measuring things. So, I'm not arguing that it shouldn't happen. I'm just saying that these are part of the forces that keep it from happening. Now, our next question. Um, I'm, oh, sorry. Okay. Stacy, this is for you because of your comment earlier about consumers being a different channel that we have to pay attention to. And I'm wondering if you can speak briefly about Bebo's recent announcement of um, having Turner and CBS have their own channels on their network pages. And then also regarding the advertise, or the discussion of the Writers Guild, how since they're going to have their own channels and be selling ad space on their channels and then therefore making a revenue from playing shows on a website, isn't that a way that you could measure and then be compensating the writers for um, with that kind of measurement? There is a revenue there and I'm just wondering if you guys can talk about that a little bit. Well, the first half of your question, I was not aware of that announcement, so you know, get me a culpa on that one. Um, in terms of the writer Good, strike, I thought I was the only one. Right, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I missed that. But um, in terms of the writer strike, you know, I think it's very layered here. And you know, there's what it costs to get this product out there, what it costs to distribute it against, you know, whether or not. People are freely getting content or they're paying for content. And we just don't have, we don't have a lot of evidence that it's profitable at the moment. And it may be profitable in the future. We certainly know that it's happening. But, um, and I'm not speaking for any side of this debate. I just, you know, as a, an observer, um, it, it's, it's too all over the place at the moment to be able to say, yes, this is definitely what we can do, and no, it's definitely what we can't. What I will tell you that I do know and from a consumer experience perspective is that what networks have been doing in building these, inter these interfaces like Hulu and um, you know, like their own environments and their own broadband sites um, is great, but it's not as 
as functional and it doesn't have as many bells and whistles as you know what consumers are coming up with in other file sharing mechanisms, right? So it's it's easier to go to a BitTorrent and get you know content, and there's a bigger library there, and you can do more with it than if you go to an ABC.com site and you have to watch you know a particular. You can't download it. You can't put it on a portable device. You can't do a lot of things with it. And this is the the industry trying to come to grips with and accept the fact that they're not going to be able to control the content completely. That's what they really want to do. And they haven't come to peace with that themselves, let alone have to think about how to pay somebody for, as, for all the times that, that gets distributed outside. The other thing we have to think about when we think about the revenue that might come in today from, let's say, let's just use the office, for example. Let's say the office is online. You're getting both the revenue from the ad sales of that uh, as well as any, you know, both those people who put it on their iPod. Um, that revenue today, uh, the zero, there could be a zero-sum gain, because remember where that might come from is the syndication revenue down the road. Obviously, there's a little bit of a burn factor there that the, the show that's seen today may not be as worthwhile down the road, and maybe it's just a zero-sum gain uh, overall on the revenue standpoint from, from uh, the producer's standpoint, from the writer's standpoint, and what have you. We should not think of it as all incremental revenue. And our next question? Well, that is syndication, but in a different Yeah, it's a, it's a syndication today rather than the, the right. syndication down the road. Yeah. Have you managed to find any metrics that advertisers find convincing beyond eyeballs or traffic? IAG seems to have a business in this. You guys familiar with IAG? Some of you? This is a, a, a company that um, has a, a field of people who actually view television shows, uh, you know, categorize where ads are, and then they've got consumers that participate in a, in a panel on, I think it's called MyRewardTV.com, and it's a game. It's like a trivia game, and you're asked questions about the content, and it, it's layered. So the farther you go, the more complicated the questions become and the more brand-specific they become until you get to the copy point. Um, and what they do is they sell this data to advertisers and they sell it to networks as a measure of commercial recall and how powerful a particular programming environment is um, to deliver an audience that is actually paying attention to your advertising to the point of remembering the copy points. Um, most of us agree we don't, we don't like the methodology because people are incentivized to watch this stuff and, and win prizes if they get the answers right. Um, I don't particularly like the fact that it, what it does is it, it creates a world in which um, the advertiser walks away with the impression that if I put my 30-second spot in Grey's Anatomy instead of in Lost, that the, people in, that the Grey's Anatomy audience is going to remember my spot better. Um, the truth of the matter is that that spot would have to be running for the very first and only time when it's measured in order for you to tell whether or not that's how they remember the copy point. It could be running in a million different places. It has nothing to do with that environment. But all that aside, this is a metric that, uh, an example of a metric that the industry has accepted largely because there is no other metric that gets at whether or not people recall actual advertising and copy points within traditional media. How's that one different thought on that, on the, on the one metric the advertisers stick to, and it goes to, point, to Bruce's point earlier, is that 
And, and, and this is a changing dynamic that I think would be a catalyst for a lot of these things changing. And that is, at the end of the day, the incremental improvement of their, their year-to-year profit and their bottom line is their metric that they care about the most, right? Now, what we're actually trying to do with our contracts, existing and then future as we come in with new clients, we're having limited success. The, the industry's trying to do it on the agency side. Some are trying to do it, some aren't. Is that we're trying to actually say, don't pay us off a percent FTE and just purely off of the, you know, how many full-time employees and it's going to take to get the work done. Let's have a contract that we have skin in the game to your profit, your bottom line. Now, that's an interesting proposition for an agency because there's a lot of stuff you don't control as to whether or not that company is going to succeed. But there are ways to debate around that and to get those contracts structured. But my point is, is basically meaning that if that becomes a discussion with the agency and the client and contracts are established that way, then we're all of a sudden going to care a whole lot more about these other interim metrics about how we're actually going to be effective and stewards of the money that comes from our clients so that we can be better. Just food for thought. If the agencies actually were more willing to take that risk and, and, and do that, then I think that would be another catalyst for significant change. Our next question. Uh, I'm Abby Mehta from Monster. Monster has built a great brand in a very short time, um, and we are the leaders in the online recruitment space. But um, my question was related to offline versus online media as we continue to want to keep, thank you, continue to keep our brand leadership. We've tended to think that the offline media is a better brand building venue versus the online advertising is more about direct behavior, clicks through and things like that. Do you have any data or um, any measurement that can talk to what each of these do or are they really? I, I, I can see you haven't read what sticks. I have actually, I've talked to Rex too, but uh, <laughs> it didn't it's stick again, it didn't it, stick. It's, it's again, <laughs> No, it's again about recall. I mean, they're talking to people and saying what you remember seeing. I think we still see a lot of people saying TV all the time, even when you're not in TV. So I think with that, I have a little bit of problem with his measurement there. But any other research about what online media does, you know, in terms of a branding perspective, or is it all about click, <laughs> click and quick... Uh, I think it has it, it clearly has direct response piece to it because it can yeah. facilitate the transaction. But what it can also do now through the discussion that you brought up earlier about yeah. widgets and tools and everything else, it, it it is an amazing source of facilitating an experience with your brand. And right. when you're when you're doing that and the interactivity that is associated in the digital space, that that experience you're creating is just as much brand building as a great advertisement on TV that really connects with the essence of who your brand is. And in fact, it's more long-lasting because it's more relevant to the social space we were talking about before. So one of the metrics we look at when we're engaging those types of behaviors is not just the number of people that do it, that, that engage in that, but we look at the loyalty and brand, brand affinity scores among people who have engaged in those particular behaviors through the online vehicle versus those who have not. And that gives us evidence as to whether or not we truly have become more relevant. There's an invited guest into their life because of the widget or tool or experience we've created for them. Um, like with BMW recently, re the Relearn to Drive effort campaign. It was kind of funny and tongue-in-cheek, but also 
what we're really trying to do is get this experience. Ultimately, we want to get people to go to the track and drive BMWs, but we're giving them a chance to play with the experience of who taught them to drive. When they're in. And so what we do is we look at the people that got into that space and participated in those activities and try to find out and, and simply be able to, through intercept you know, type of standard research, look at their scores on brand affinity and so forth as compared to people who have not. Well, let me deconstruct a little bit more of, of the Rex Briggs research because uh, when I was at Forrester, I worked very closely with him and I was extremely skeptical at first when it came out. If you really dive down into it, um, what you see is that the online advertising really contributed a small incremental branding effect compared to TV. TV still hugely effective. It's sight, sound, motion, all of those, it has much more reach, all of those kinds of, kinds of reasons. But the role that he discovered in there that I thought was extremely insightful for online is that it's reaching the light TV viewer, which is the classic media planning problem. You know, once you, you know, once you hit a certain level of frequency on TV, you're just hitting the same old people over and over again, you've gotten your message across to them already, that's all waste. And so traditionally you add print, you add outdoor, and so online is another way of being that, that kind of reach extender once you pass that point of inefficiency for TV. But functionally, does the way it communicates a message, what message it leaves, really fundamentally different than, than in other media? I, I don't believe so. And, there's, and if you look at, I would just, one caveat is, although television is seen as the awareness medium, the reach medium, New technologies are changing yeah. that, right? So in an, an on-demand right. universe, we have advertisers that can do showcases and have telescoping you know, capabilities to go yeah. into long-form content that sits somewhere on a dark channel um, that can be bookmarked by a consumer and not interrupting their main right. experience. So television may become a medium where there can be more depth of experience yeah. but you know it's a very small size right as you know all of those studies were done on 468 by 60 banners and as we get more online video with video commercials we'll, we'll I think see that kind of convergence as well do we have any more questions from the audience have there been any uh... can somebody pass a mic up to him for the viewers that will be watching in the future on podcast <laughs> thank you With all the, the new media space and the talk of TV's dead, TV's not dead, et cetera, um, are, there any, uh, are there any case studies or things that you guys have observed in the last few years that jumped out at you, that surprised you, uh, and what results came of that? I'm sure we've seen a little of both. Yeah. In terms of TV dead, TV not dead? No, more in terms of... Um, just are there anything that came out of left field? Like you were talking earlier about how everyone thought Lost might fail or that uh, Queer Eye, all of a sudden nobody predicted it. Are there any other examples of maybe advertising or media buys or uh, shows or any, I don't know, any, any anomalies? Surprise effects. Yeah. High School Musical. Well, High School yeah. Musical is, is a case study in itself. Now, in, in both in, in, and this is more in the mass type of thing, that the mass still does exist. That, and how, how a Disney is able to leverage that mass, not in one form, but in so many forms, able to leverage it from this viewership on television to uh, the number one record of the year, to a skating show, to the next one, and the same thing through, and then to a movie. I think that's a, a case study in itself that's a little bit 
um, different than the, than the niche case studies that people are looking at, that there is still this opportunity to bring mass together. And I, that they've done it, and they've done it in so many different formats. Well, it's true. I mean, when you think about the movie model, right, you have to get people to see a movie multiple times. You know, there's a multiple, depending on what kind of movie it is, in order to be profitable. And this is what Disney did, but they did it in television, right? They, they had one version of, of um, High School Musical, and then there was the, the dance version, right, where, you could, where there were the dance breaks in the middle, and they could teach you all the steps. I know I had to do that with my stepdaughters. And there was, you know, the sing-along <laughs> with the lyrics. I mean, they have and multiple they versions the, of the same content. They sold the DVD content. massively. That was available for free. I'll give you four. I'll give you four. I'll give you YouTube, MySpace, and Facebook to start with. Um, I've only been, you know, at Symphony for two years. When I joined them, it was all about blogs. Everything was about blogs, you know. So we did all, we did all this development work. We spent all this time so we could pull in blog content and analyze and blah blah blah. The next thing we go whack well, blogs. Yeah, no, now it's YouTube, and now we're trying to and we're still trying to figure out how do we pull in and analyze video content. You know, that's a really really hard problem. Well, forget YouTube because now it's MySpace, and we actually talked to the MySpace people. They they contacted us. And they wanted us to do a little test of analyzing their stuff. And they were going to give us like a week's worth of data. It was like 50 gigabytes of data over like seven days. And we're like going, oh my god, our systems don't scale to that quantity. you know." Um, so all of these things are coming out of nowhere. And god knows what it's going to be next year. Number four, um, I, which I hope this will, this will have this kind of surprise. It's a, a paper that uh, we wrote that's going to be published in the Journal of Advertising Research. Uh, next month, they've got a special uh, uh, word-of-mouth issue coming out. Well, last year, we tracked all of the discussion around the advertising at the Super Bowl, all 40-something advertisers. And uh, when we started doing the analysis, uh, we looked at different groups of advertisers based on when they announced their involvement. So you have Doritos, who went out, you know, this time a year ago with their Crash the Super Bowl contest, and a few others that had those kinds of things down to the people who never even said that they were, they were going to be on the game. And we looked at that from the lens of, you know, traditionally advertisers think the strategy is, you know, we're going to keep this really secret. And then when people see it on, on the game, they're going to be like so amazed at this really incredibly cool spot that they're going to talk about this with their friends the next day. Well, what we found was that not only did Doritos and Chevrolet and uh, Nationwide and people like that you know, obviously capture much more share before the game since they were talking about their ad and these other people weren't. They still got more share after the game as well. So, you know, to me that was really surprising. That there is, you know, advertisers kind of, again, I think there's this narcissism in, in advertising and marketing and in brands that we think people care about our brands as much as we do. And the minute we put our TV commercial up on our website, the entire world's going to flock and see it. And that, that simply is not the case. What happens, I think, is classic you know, word of mouth viral marketing theory where you get your mavens, your connectors, who will see it. And they get to the, you know, the Super Bowl party. And that commercial comes on. They go, shh, shh, everybody, this is a great ad. You've got to watch this. And I think that you know, then everyone sees that. And then afterwards, the people uh, who haven't seen it before the game are talking about it. We're going to go with one final question, and then I just was going to ask you something in wrap-up. Um, can, I, can I just quickly, because there's, yeah. there's one. 
I'll do it really quick. It's the lightning round. One other case study, <laughs> Apple TV. Apple TV is a great case study. Learn from it. When this came out in the first quarter of the year, analysts were saying 2 million sold by the end of the year. It'll add $10 billion of value to the company. How many Apple TVs have been sold? We have no idea because they won't talk about it. <laughs> it's gone from this great product to now st it's Steve Jobs' hobby. <laughs> Literally. Why? The case study was already written. People don't want a standalone box. But people didn't want to read the case study that was already written, and Apple TV was going to do it again. It's a good case study. Go ahead. <laughs> That's great. I remember reading a few years ago about uh, technology adoption and, and the, the bell curve, you know, uh, innovators, early adopters, early majority, late majority, laggards. And then, and then uh, re re reading that that was actually, that study came out of grain uh, adoption in the Midwest during the 1950s or something. And um, I, was, I was wondering, are you, have you stumbled across anything that relates to human behavior uh, similar parallels to what we're talking about here, because after all, that, that that seems to be a lot of what you're touching on, sort of measuring the the emotional context or the or the user experience that that has nothing to do with media that might lend some perspective, some outside perspective on on what we're discussing in terms of measuring all of this. Check out a company called Neurofocus. Uh, they're measuring people's brain waves with CAT scans to see what stimulus um, they respond to. And they're doing it for advertisers and brands and television content. I, I, I think that I think if you also look at when I was talking about the agent-based simulation complexity science, I think you, the world of swarm theory and chaos theory, those a lot of those things, I think are going to become very relevant in understanding what happens because the fragmentation of the multiple options of, of content and, and, and connections start to very closely begin to mimic biology and nature in terms of the complexities of what happens. And that's where swarm and complexity science grows out of. And the reality is, is that now we've got so many nodes of contact and connection that the world of marketing is like an organic system almost. Now, if you all can remember way wow. back a little after 1 o'clock, um, I pointed out that one of the interesting things about this panel is that each of you are coming at these questions from very different uh, perspectives. One of the, uh, for almost this whole panel, the top question, the most voted question on the board is, we've established all the problems and all the challenges that we're facing in audience measurement right now. Uh, could you just, in the last five minutes, could each of you speak just very briefly about what you feel your company is doing in particular uh, that's innovative in trying to answer these questions and how to move forward? It's not my job. <laughs> my job is to understand the consumer. My job is to understand where the consumer stands today, where they're going, and I think that really comes down to how we should we 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 analyze these things. Is you know, kind of talked about before. Technology is way ahead of the consumer, so we really have to look at the evolution rather than revolution and how consumers are evolving. And that's really what what I'm trying to look at, and what I think anybody uh, in a corporate setting needs. Because I go back to what is the time frame. The gee whiz, if it's gee whiz 2015, that's very different to a company than if it's gee whiz 2010. And that's what I'm trying to figure out is how fast are these technologies going to be adopted in, in the mass and then on the niche level. You know, in terms of the big media companies, our biggest challenge right now is trying to figure out how to keep commercials audiences 
at relevant, relevantly equal levels to program audiences, meaning when you compare program minutes to commercial minutes. And so you'll see, and I, you probably already do if you watch television, there's lots of innovation going on out there. It's not just happening at my company, although we like to think we're pretty innovative. Um, but you'll see lots of new methods of trying to get advertisers involved with the content, whether that be through micro-series or um, it's in uh, movie franchises like Dinner in a Movie or uh, ways of integrating content, um, changing how many commercial breaks you see or how long they are. So you'll, you'll see overlays, um, you'll see squeeze boxes, you'll see all kinds of new stuff with graphics. And it's really our way of, of trying to figure out how to keep you engaged, not interrupt your principal reason for being there, but also getting you to, to see the, uh, the advertisements from the good folks who put their money on our air. So that's, that's where we're going. I think the, the couple areas of what we're really trying to do, one in particular that's been, I think, fairly innovative. We've had a lot of success with it. I alluded to it earlier in our Involve methodology, which we're trying to convince our clients and work with them in the fact that we need to actually study qualitatively and ethnographically first how the consumer engages in our in our category with our product in terms of not just not not necessarily just looking at the life cycle of the consumer value but the dynamics the triggers and stages of decision making vis-a-vis -vis what we do if it's trying to help people stop smoking trying to help them sell them something or whatever it is with the various clients and then as we study that and get it very clearly mapped out to go through and put in um, channel power scores or indices against the various channels that are, uh, that are at our disposal so that we can plan within the context of this communica communication architecture that we create so that we understand that there are, we're not telling, we're not really all about the one singular piercing insight that then covers off all the communications we do. We're about multiple insights and chapters of a story that we need to help manage with our clients to have an interactive dialogue. And that's dramatically changing internally the culture of how we plan and the creative development and then externally with our clients of, of thinking through the solutions that we bring to the table which may or may not have anything to do with the TV spot or anything in traditional advertising. It may have to do with putting something on a desktop tray of someone's computer to help them find flights when they need to find them. And our involved method is the most, I think, innovative thing that we've been doing as of late to help get us there so that we have some context and some actual indices against which to make those plans. One of the things I wrote down here, Stacy, was your quote about the re-aggregation of meaningful sums. And I, I encourage you all to think a lot about that. I think that is a really interesting, interesting idea. And I kind of have to jump out of Symphony and get up to my colleagues at TNS which, as I said before, we've got these silos of data about print and TV and radio and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it is one of the issues at the high levels there to think about how do we aggregate that or how do we cross-tab all that data to, to get to the understanding of the consumer. And I think in the future it's not really going to be about what's the audience for this TV show because guess what? No advertiser really wants to buy 30 seconds on Dancing with the Stars or Lost. They don't care about that. They need to reach X million women 18 to 35 in this period of time to drive this number of sales. And they don't really care whether you know, they reach you know, 2 million on TV and a million here and a million there. At the end of the day, they have that goal during that time period. And I think that's where, you know, as this fragmentation continues, um, 
where it, where it's got to go because as we as people do get more highly engaged with more niche content that they are more passionate about, I do believe that there is some halo effect from that, that that level of engagement with content, you know, will transfer to, um, uh, 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 to, to the brand to some extent. And actually, Bill Harvey um, has done some really interesting work on that. Um, and so you're actually, as we get a better understanding of this, I don't think you're going to want to put a lot of your money in the show with the eight or 10 rating that costs a lot of money, that you'd really rather aggregate that meaningful sum from a lot of 100,000, 50,000, 200,000 kinds of audiences, um, because you'll get more of that kind of value. Well, I want to say thank you to the audience for some robust discussion on the board. Uh, thank you for some insightful questions, and thank you very much to our panelists. We're going to take a 15-minute break, and uh, then we'll be talking about fan labor. <laughs>